Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 56. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The war against the virus is expanding and evolving. It's not a game, but it is a team sport. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. We have to open up. We have to right. go back. Our bus drivers, our but hasn't cleaners, it been because of social distancing that the numbers have been what they are? How do you know until we have a control group? We offer to be a control group. Anybody who knows anything about statistics knows that, for instance, you have a vaccine. You're, you're offering you the, real the citizens of Las Vegas to be a control group to see if your I theory on social distancing. No, 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 wrong. Absolutely wrong. Don't put words in my mouth. You just said said we'll be a control group. Excuse me. What I said was I offered to be a control group and I was told by our statistician you can't do that because people from all parts of Southern Nevada come in to work in the city. And I said, oh, that's too bad because I know when you have a disease, you have a placebo that gets the water and the sugar, and then you get those that actually get the shot. We would love to be that placebo side so you have something to measure against. Wow. That's Las Vegas mayor and world champion stupid person, Carolyn Goodman. In a nation full of top players, She won the jackpot. She wants to make the biggest bet ever placed in the history of Las Vegas. She wants to volunteer the entire city, a population of 650,000 people, to reopen and see what happens. She wants to open casinos, strip bars, nightclubs, pool parties, Celine Dion concerts. She wants to open them all up and see what happens. She's putting the lives of hundreds of thousands of people on Red 19, and spinning the wheel. Of course, she's not herself going to be dealing blackjack at the Tropicana to Chinese tourists. No, she says she has a family. She's fine betting the lives of hundreds of thousands of other people who also have families, city employees, minimum wage workers, just bet them all and see what happens. She's the worst kind of player in the worst sport in America, driving America to the top of the worst scoreboard in the world. She's priding herself on rebelling against the groupthink that is science, against the lemmings that follow common sense, and against the silly hacks that don't just want to pray it all away. No, she wants to ignore the message that's been received by 97% of America and most of the world, from Japan to Australia to Germany. Mayor Goodman wants to bet the house on Red 19. But our battle against the coronavirus is no game. But it is a team sport. Maybe the most important team sport we'll ever be a part of. And every single one of us will have to play our position and help our team win. We don't have sports right now in America or anywhere, really. So it's almost become a sport to watch politicians compete with Michael Jordan-like intensity to become the stupidest politician in America. And like the NBA in the 90s, the competition is fierce. And Mayor Goodman will get her clip on the Sports Center of Stupid. But she's not even our big winner this episode. No, 
There's someone who delivered a performance that's even better, a truly championship performance. More on that in a minute. But as we look for signs of hope in New Jersey, New York, Washington State, and across the hardest hit parts of America, we need to recognize the game is far from over. This is not the end of the fourth quarter. It might not even be halftime yet. And good teams know how to finish. We need America right now to be a team of finishers. We need to pull together our unlikeliest of teammates to bring home the title, the grand title of survivors of the pandemic. We need not just our superstar, Michael Jordan. We need our Scottie Pippen, our Dennis Rodman, our Luke Longley, our Tony Kukoc, and our Phil Jackson. And our BJ Armstrong, our Horace Grant, our Will Perdue. Like the great Chicago Bulls of the 90s, we need America to assemble a crew of different backgrounds that can unite around one mission and lead the world on the biggest stage of them all. We need Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio and Gavin Newsom and Gretchen Whitmer, along with Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome and even Jared Kushner. Kushner can be like our Dennis Rodman. They all need to find a way to make it work so we can prevent more of our fellow Americans from dying and to prevent a catastrophe that forever weakens America. There's a massively popular documentary series that just came out about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan in the 90s. It's on ESPN, and it's called The Last Dance. It was the last dance for Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson and that legendary team. They knew it was the last season they'd have together before they all broke up. And if we don't get our shit together as a country, the coronavirus will be the last dance for America. But if we do get it together, we can unite our leaders and unite our people in a way we've never been united before. We can turn crisis into opportunity. We can bring our fractured nation together to create a new dream team and a new dynasty for our country for our globe, and for our children. But it all comes down to one thing, teamwork. And in this episode, we've got a fantastic conversation with another important, inspiring, iconic American who knows a thing or two about teamwork. He's a leader who's shaped what this country was, what it is, and what it will be going forward. He's a master of sports in America, but he's also a master of America. So what's the future of sports after the coronavirus? Will the NBA play again this season at all? How will sports look in our new normal? Will the NFL season even start? David Aldridge is one of the best and most respected sports writers in America. He's a basketball icon that's been on our TVs for decades covering the NBA for ESPN, TNT, and now for The Athletic. He's also an astute observer of the intersection of sports, culture, politics, race, and economics. David's interviewed presidents, and he's received the Basketball Hall of Fame's Kurt Gowdy Media Award for his contributions to the game. He's a tenacious advocate for his hometown of Washington, D.C., and he's interviewed Steph Curry, President Barack Obama, Michael Jordan, and countless others. On Angry Americans, we've always focused on the intersection of politics, sports, and culture. And as our war against the coronavirus drags on, sports is one of the things people everywhere miss the most. 
And with concerns from players about safety and pushes from politicians to restart the league, David will help us understand the biggest challenges and the bigger picture of sports in the world of coronavirus. And as the hit ESPN documentary about Jordan and the Bulls, The Last Dance, captivates audiences everywhere, as the NFL draft goes virtual, as Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski head to Tampa, and as we recognize the 16th anniversary of the death of the NFL player and Army Ranger Pat Tillman, David's wisdom will leave you enlightened and inspired. There's no sports in America. No NBA, no baseball, no hockey, no nothing. No scoreboards to check every morning. So now the entire country tunes in to see the latest coronavirus scoreboard. And the coronavirus has now infected 2.6 million people worldwide. 834,000 people across every state in America, plus Washington, D.C., the four U.S. territories, they've all been touched, according to a fantastic New York Times database that I highly recommend you check out. Over 42,000 people with the coronavirus have now died in the United States, and that number is increasing by more than 2,000 per day. And that doesn't even include the more than 5,000 people in New York City who died and are believed to have had the coronavirus, patients that died without being tested a consequence of a strained medical system and a consistent lack of testing capacity and thousands of others nationwide that we might not have tracked. But there were some promising signs in some parts of the country. In New York, Governor Cuomo predicted the worst may be over. In San Francisco, the rate of new cases looks like it's stabilized. And in Seattle, the first major battlefield of America's war on the virus, there's improvement showing. And they even started to break down some of the field hospitals. And as the U.S. continues to run up the score on the worst scoreboard possible, total cases and deaths, the fight against the virus is looking more and more like the fight against Al-Qaeda. We knock it down in one place and it pops up in another. And if we don't have a comprehensive, aggressive, well-led, well-resourced strategy, just like our fight against Al-Qaeda, our fight against the virus will be reduced to a different kind of game. Whack-a-mole. New outbreaks are popping up now in new states, in rural states, and in poorly led states, and in rural and suburban places you may not have noticed. The top 10 counties with the highest number of cases per resident? Well, that list includes places you've probably heard of, like Westchester, Rockland, and Nassau counties in New York, just outside the city. But it also includes some counties and states that might surprise you, like Lincoln, Arkansas, Marion, Ohio, Pickaway, Ohio. Louisa, Iowa, Blaine, Idaho, and Randolph, Georgia. These are the new front lines. As the fight expands into a time where there are no more front lines anymore, the enemy is everywhere. As President Mayhem continues to waste endless national time and energy on press conferences from hell, attacking our allies in the World Health Organization, pushing hydroxychloroquine, the deadly snake oil of our pandemic, trying to paint a rosy picture and avoid any responsibility, he continues to perpetuate the spread. It's his favorite pastime. I'm the play-by-play announcer who's in your ear all game long. And the more praise I heap on your team, the more excited you get. Touchdown! Now, you don't hear the upstairs toilet overflowing. And I don't mean with confidence. You wanted a bowl season? You got a bowl season. And if I could show up on game day, imagine what could happen the rest of the week. And President Mayhem is a defending champion, 
the reigning MVP. He's like the Michael Jordan of mayhem and infection. He's the high scorer, the Hall of Famer, the number one draft pick of infection. He's fuel injecting the spread daily, hourly, by the minute, by the tweet. He's passing it from state to state, person to person, cabinet secretary to cabinet secretary, governor to governor. He's not wearing a mask. He's high-fiving, he's hugging, he's slobbering like a St. Bernard and passing it all around. No, he's not passing around the coronavirus. He's passing around the stupid. And the stupid has continued to be the strongest, most shocking, fastest evolving virus in America. The spread started in the White House and got passed to Congress and then passed to Fox News, then passed to Rand Paul, then passed to Florida, then passed to the Navy, then passed to South Dakota and firmly landed in South Dakota, rapidly infecting the weak mind of Governor Kristi Noem, who refused to close her state, who instead insisted on issuing a statewide day of prayer only to have the single worst outbreak in America emerge in her state just a few days later in a meat plant. And she's working really hard to defend her title. Here she is with Sean Hannity. We're in a really great spot as a state. We had one issue in a pork processing facility, so we're aggressively testing in that area. How is that going? Well, there's, gosh, there's almost 800 people that have tested positive out of 3,700 employees. So a big number of them, but they've isolated them. We were aggressively over testing in that area and identifying those positives. And we're getting that county and that city under control. A really good spot. 800 people in one facility tested positive in the worst outbreak in America. And that's a good spot? Shit, what does she think a bad spot looks like? 420 just passed, and I want some of what she's been smoking out there in South Dakota because it would take some powerful stuff for you to see the world that way. And it actually got worse. A second worker from a Smithfield meat processing plant in South Dakota has died of the coronavirus. Craig Franken, 61, died on Sunday from COVID-19 complications. A 40-year veteran of the plant, Franken, according to his obituary, was planning to retire in the next couple of years. So two people have died. 800 are infected in a pork plant that sends food all across America. And it could actually get even worse soon. South Dakota doesn't have any regulations against large public gatherings in the wake of the coronavirus. So coming up this weekend... Park Jefferson International Speedway will hold the Open Wheel Nationals, a dirt race. So there's almost no sports in America, but there is in South Dakota. 700 fans are being allowed to attend because there's no stay-at-home order in the state. Track owner Adam Adamson, whose infectious disease qualifications are limited to zero, says that steps are being taken to assure the safety of those who attend. We intend to go overboard on following the CDC guidelines, Adamson said. Yeah? My name's Mater. Mater? Yeah, like tuh Mater, but without the tuh. That's what that made me think of. And Adam Adamson continued. He said, we're just a small racetrack in rural South Dakota trying to give some entertainment and give a little break from some of the madness that's going on right now. We think we can do it in a safe environment. You think so, huh, Adam? Good luck. I love dirt track racing. It's one of the best things I've done with my son. He loves cars. I love cars. We love racing. But I ain't doing it now because I also love the older people in my life. And I love healthcare workers. And I love not having a healthcare system crash any harder than it already has. I sure hope you have some mechanics at that race who can turn their cars into ventilators because there probably aren't too many of them there in rural South Dakota. So I think, unfortunately, 
We're going to be hearing from you again soon, Mr. Adamson. But the stupid spread across South Dakota and to Las Vegas, which is just dirty to begin with. And now it's infecting an entirely new frontier, the great state of Georgia. Given the favorable data, enhanced testing, and approval of our healthcare professionals, we will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, nail care artists, estheticians, their respective schools, and massage therapists to reopen their doors this Friday, April the 24th. Georgia's had their share of disappointment with the Falcons and with the University of Georgia, but that's Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who just became governor last year after the most controversial race in the nation. He claimed to have beaten Stacey Abrams after notably refusing to resign as Secretary of State while campaigning for governor, a move that constituted a conflict of interest of epic proportions. Because as Secretary of State, his job was to oversee the election that he was running in, an election with accusations of widespread voter suppression that would have to have been investigated by him. So it was like being the referee in your own game. It was a dirty play, and he's a dirty player. He's like the Bill Lambeer of politics but much dumber. Bowling alleys, tattoo shops, massage therapists. Are you shitting me? This guy thinks it's the right move to start reopening his state there? Because in the middle of this pandemic, who doesn't want to run out and get a dude breathing on your skin for a few hours while you get a butterfly tattoo on your butt? And who doesn't want some deep tissue massage in a small place with a heavily breathing stranger right now? Sure, I'd love a massage right now as much as the next guy, but no way. What the hell is this guy thinking? I spent a ton of time in Georgia. I like a lot about Georgia. I basically lived there when I was in the Army in Fort Stewart or Fort Benning. And the Pentagon is actually extending military travel restrictions through June, indicating a concern that the coronavirus remains a threat to the troops, even as the Trump administration pushes for some states to begin to reopen in May. So the Pentagon is locking people down. But Georgia Governor Brian Kemp wants to get those massage parlors and tattoo shops cooking right away. And even Fox News' Martha McCallum is stunned. And that's saying something. For instance, is it in Atlanta, if someone wants to get their nails done or their hair done on Friday and or a tattoo or go to a gym, I mean, these are very close contact kinds of businesses that are the first ones on your list. Can you explain why you would start with those kinds of businesses on day one? Well, those are the ones who are closed. The other businesses in Georgia are still currently opening under the order that I have now, and we're coming down. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand, but you also have to give that fitness owner or that owner in a hair salon the, uh, you know, the ability to be able to be a partner in this fight that we're in. You know, they're going to have to follow the strict guidelines. I would tell you that I imagine there'll be people in gyms that'll be a lot safer than they would be going to the grocery store or some of the other places of business that are part of the critical infrastructure that's been designated at the federal level. You know, this is going to take some common sense. Common sense? (laughs) And Governor Kemp's level of stupid is being recognized far and wide. And maybe in the biggest heartbreak of Kemp's life since Georgia got beat by Alabama in the national championship game, Someone else chimed in. And holy shit, even this guy disagrees. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase 
one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are they're great. They've been strong, resolute. But at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. I want him to do what he thinks is right. Uh, but I disagree with him on what he's doing, but I want to let the governors do. Now, if I see something totally egregious, totally out of line, I'll do. But I think spas and beauty salons and tattoo parlors and barber shops in uh, phase one, we're going to have phase two very soon. It's just too soon. I think it's too soon. Too soon. Even that guy thinks it's too soon. Even that guy thinks Kemp is too stupid. And therefore, after this record-breaking run of stupid, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp gets a new trophy, one he probably won't want to put in his trophy case. Etched on that trophy are the names of the greats, the greatest players who've achieved the apex of stupidity. Senator Ron Paul, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. And while I've become the Tony Romo of predicting assholes in politics, I didn't predict this one. It was a come-from-behind win of epic proportions. He's like Tom Brady, totally undrafted and now a superstar. And Governor Brian Kemp is the new champion of the world. He gets the title. He gets the trophy. He gets the accolades. And he gets this championship walkout song that goes with it. I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane while people behind me are going So Kemp wins the title this time. And for a while, Kemp was trending on Twitter, and most of us thought it was Sean Kemp, not Brian Kemp, but it was Brian Kemp. And since I want to continue my run as the Tony Romo of predicting stupid, I want to flag for you an up-and-coming prospect that you might have missed in your pre-NFL draft research, a potential superstar in the world of stupid that is one to watch for sure, Dan Patrick. No, not the ESPN and SportsCenter guy. He's great. No, I'm talking about the lieutenant governor of Texas who went deep into the land of the infected, Fox News, to drop this Michael Jordan jumper gem of a shot of stupid. We're crushing the the average worker. We're crushing small business. We're crushing the markets. We're crushing this country. And what I said when I was with you that night, there are more important things than living. And that's saving this country for my children and my grandchildren and saving this country for all of us. And I don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. But man, we got to we got to take some risk and get back in the game and get this country back up and running. There are more important things than living. We got to get back in the game. It's not a game, dude. And if it was, you'd be on the bench. It's not about money. It's about public health and the highest stakes possible. You seem to think protecting people is not a priority and you don't want to listen to the science or even the military. I think we'll be seeing or hearing from you again soon. Because once you get infected with the stupid, there's no vaccine and there's no recovery. It's permanent and it's fatal. Despite that temporary moment of sanity in responding to Governor Kemp, President Mayhem continues to fail to be a good team player. He's the guy at the court who never passes the ball. He's like Allen Iverson, but without the handle and the ability to score. He's like a Jerry Krause of politics, digging in and making stupid decisions. Instead of refusing to keep Michael Jordan and Phil Jackson together, Trump continues to refuse to issue a national stay-at-home order. But despite him being the ultimate ball hog, the rest of America, for the most part, 
is working together as a team. Most of America is teaming up to fight the common enemy that is the virus. And Operation Stay at Home America is still mostly activated. It slipped a bit, but most of Team America is now under some form of lockdown. So 95% of America is staying at home right now. And 5% of America has leadership that's trying to kill the rest of us. And at least 5% of all leaders in America are still infected with the stupid. Five percent of America is riddled with the sickness, the sickness of stupid. Eight states continue to hold out: Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. They still haven't issued statewide stay-at-home orders. Wyoming, Utah, and Oklahoma only have orders in parts of the state. So eight governors continue to put their people at risk and put us all at risk. Eight governors who continue to help the terrorists. Help those who would do us harm to do the work of ISIS, Iran, North Korea, and Putin. Eight governors who are like the opposite of Jed and Matt Eckerd from Red Dawn. They're not the Wolverines. They're like Robert in Red Dawn, the traitor. They're selling out our public health, our national security, our future. They refuse to be team players. They continue to do their own thing. And they continue to refuse to shut it down. As the war against the coronavirus continues, like a modern baseball season that never ends, I brought you leaders who can help you navigate this new normal. Michael Jordan's, Tom Brady's, Serena Williams's of leadership that are out in front, taking big shots and motivating their teammates. Navy SEAL and leadership and chaos expert Chris Fussell, Army Colonel Miles Caggins, Medal of Honor recipient Flo Groberg, Dr. Paul Hazer, superhero Jake Wood from Team Rubicon, and Jeffrey Wright of Westworld. All first-round draft picks, reliable teammates, captains you can count on to take the big shot. Teammates fighting the virus and fighting for you and me and all the grandmas and grandpas and the rest of the world in this war against the virus. And in this episode, we've got another leader who brings us comfort, insight, and perspective. An important, inspiring, and truly iconic American who always breaks it down. Leaders in the fight against coronavirus come in many forms. And in this pod, we have an analyst and a teacher who helps us think about the future. We all need escapes, and few are better than sports. In our modern world, sports is still one of the few things we all share together live. Elections, special concerts, weather, disasters, and sports. Sports can be a way to connect with a stranger anywhere else in America. Don't have anything to talk about? Talk about the weather, or talk about your kids, or talk about sports. And we're all missing sports right now. And we'll miss sports even more in the weeks to come. But how long will we have to wait? What sports might be coming online safely soon? What leagues might never come back? The great and powerful David Aldridge will take us through all of it. He's a man who's thoughtfully gracefully, smartly taken us through some of the biggest moments in basketball and in sports history. At a time when sports and politics are wrapped in ways like never before, 
from the national anthem protests to the export of American products to the cancellation of the Olympics to philanthropy by players to the virtual NFL draft to a president who drives championship teams away from the White House. It's a smart and enlightening conversation with one of the most notable leaders in sports journalism. And you'll hear his insights into success, parenting, trust, and of course, his favorite drink and his first car. And he'll explain a wild plan the NBA is cooking up right now that might give them a way to reopen before the spring ends and might explain the comments from one of the politicians you heard from earlier. And later in the show, I'll give you information about how you can make an impact and support the fight against coronavirus. This is an episode that will give you perspective, a bit of an escape, but also, and always, a call to action. A way to come off the bench and help from your quarantine. And I'll have some special thank yous and a new way to support this show and get exclusive special access to me, our guests, future virtual events, cool merchandise, and much more as Angry Americans and Righteous Media continues to grow. As the pandemic grows, we're built for this. The war is everywhere now. Like basketball courts, tennis courts, football fields. Everywhere in America you see a basketball hoop, there's coronavirus. There are people infected and there are people scared. Whether your sport is golf or NASCAR or hockey or track and field, it's all frozen now. And we're all facing the same threat. We're all worried about our loved ones. But by the end of this, just like in our last world war, we'll all be touched by it in some way. From Blazers fans in Portland to Saints fans in New Orleans to Jayhawk fans in Kansas to Caps fans in Washington, D.C., to Manchester United fans, to fans of the Olympics all across America and all around the world, wherever you are, to the players and coaches who've tested positive, from Kevin Durant to Sean Payton to Patrick McEnroe to Von Miller to James Dolan to Doris Burke and back to David Aldridge, to me, to you. Together, we're truly one team now, all Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. Riders on the storm. And before we get to our conversation with David, as the NFL draft unfolds and the UFC is looking for a place to fight, and as the knuckleheads on the beaches in Tampa look out for Brady and Gronk, there's some news and issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. As the war continues to be the season that never ends, the only scoreboard being updated, our leadoff hitter again, is our expanding and evolving war against the coronavirus. More than 178,000 people have died worldwide. Over 42,000 Americans have died. The number of Americans dead has almost doubled since the last episode of this podcast dropped just seven days ago. And it doubled in the seven days before that. Two weeks ago, the number of dead in America was 14,800. Now, it's 42,000. And U.S. coronavirus cases are now over 835,000. Don't let them tell you that's a small number. That's more than the entire population of Boston, Massachusetts, or Washington, D.C., or Denver, Colorado, or Seattle, Washington. And COVID-19, the illness caused by coronavirus, is arguably the leading cause of death in the United States right now. And 22 million Americans have been unemployed in the four weeks since President Donald Trump declared a national emergency. The war is on a roll now, hitting shot after shot. And outside the U.S., 
there's an ebb and flow that might be more of what we should expect for in the future. Much more than a light at the end of the tunnel, we may have to adjust to a new normal with less light. There's a must-read piece in the New York Times by Donald G. McNeil Jr., a guy you should add to your Google Alerts right now, Donald G. McNeil Jr. He's talked to dozens of top experts to give us a sense of what our future might look like. And it's impossible to avoid gloomy forecasts for the next year. The scenario that Trump's been unrolling in his daily press briefings week after week, that the lockdowns will end soon, that a protective pill is almost at hand, that football stadiums and restaurants are going to open soon, it's a fantasy, most experts say. Dr. Harvey Feinberg, a former president of the National Academy of Medicine, said, we face a doleful future. Doleful means expressing sorrow, mournful. And that's why this old song is popular again. Summer has come and passed. The innocent can never last. Wake me up when September ends. It's not September, but it does feel gloomy at times. China's reporting about 100 new infections per day, and they recently closed all the country's movie theaters again. Singapore took a step back, too, closed all schools and non-essential workplaces. South Korea is struggling again, and Japan recently declared a state of emergency. And back home here, the business community continues to get decimated. Neiman Marcus now is close to bankruptcy. That follows JCPenney, Barney's, and Macy's, so this is likely the end of department stores in America. The war against the virus has fully expanded now. Most everyone is awake. Tired, but awake. And New York continues to be the most woke of all. And it sucks here. Everyone is impacted. One in 62 people in New York City have tested positive for the virus. One in 235 people in New York City have been hospitalized for the virus. And one in 582 people in New York City has died from the virus. Crematories are overwhelmed by the number of dead. And 15,300 New Yorkers have died, more than three times the number that died in 9-11. And despite the carnage, when the big game moments keep coming, Trump is nowhere to be seen. And Governor Andrew Cuomo, who probably would have done just fine on those gritty old Pistons teams or the old Bulls teams or the old Celtics teams, he's not taking any shit. The president doesn't want to help on testing. He said 11 times. I said the one issue we need help with is testing. He said 11 times. I don't want to get involved in testing. It's too complicated. It's too hard. I know it's too complicated and it's too hard. That's why we need you to help. I can't do an international supply chain. Uh, He wants to say, well, I did enough. Yeah, none of us have done enough. We haven't because it's not over. So, yes, thank you for the Javits. Thank you for the U.S. Navy ship Comfort. But it's not over. We have a lot more to do. And no one can take the posture, well, just say thank you for what I've done, and I'm now out. I'm not doing anything else. I've done my part. What if I said to the people of my state, okay, I'm done. By the way, I saved hundreds of thousands of lives. I flattened the curve. I created more hospital beds than anyone ever imagined. I coordinated the entire state. I'm done. I'm done. I'm going home. 
I'm going to go see my mother, I'm going to spend time with my kids, and I'm going to go out fishing in Connecticut because their marinas are open. Uh, that's it. I'm done. What if I said that? That's what he's saying. I'm done. It's not over. And he's not done. He can't be done. No matter how hard it is. Great players play all the way until the buzzer sounds. And that buzzer is not even close. And I don't know about you, but I definitely wouldn't want to play on a team that Trump is coaching. Or de Blasio. But I'd play on Cuomo's team. If he were a coach, he'd be the kind of coach that players would run through walls for. And speaking of walls, Trump loves him. And he's still pushing to build one. And he's trying to suspend all immigration now. In order to protect our great American workers, I've just signed an executive order temporarily suspending immigration into the United States. This will ensure that unemployed Americans of all backgrounds will be first in line for jobs as our economy reopens. Crucially, it will also preserve our health care resources for American patients. We have to take care of our patients. We have to take care of our great American workers. He says he's doing it to take care of our patients and our great American workers. Unfortunately, freezing people out of America will hurt both the patients and our great American workers. If we need more doctors or nurses, they'll be blocked out. Some who are already here will just leave due to the increased hostility. Not to mention we can forget about any new Tony Kukoc's or Dirk Nowitzki's. 25% of all NBA players are international now. So I imagine Trump's going to be getting some phone calls from his rich friends who own teams. But Trump did take Cuomo's phone call, and they finally met at the White House. And Cuomo says it was productive. We had a productive meeting at the White House yesterday, productive visit. Sort of a, everybody says productive visit. Very few people come out and say unproductive visit, right? Uh, what does that mean, productive visit? To me, a productive visit means we spoke truth, we spoke facts, we made, the, made decisions, and we have a plan going forward. And that was accomplished yesterday. And I feel good about it personally. Because it's what should have happened, right? The big issues on the table. Uh, in the political process, well, he said this, she said this, and you get into a he said, she said, or you get into a blame game, finger pointing. But the meeting was very productive. So there's finally some hope that Trump can play nicely with others and make things happen for all of us. We'll need that. And we'll need a whole lot more. We'll especially need a whole lot more from the two pillars of the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs. They can be our big men in the paint. They can be our cavalry or they can be our house of cars. They can come in and be our John Paxson, or they can be our John Starks. We need them to be strong because our war on the virus is continuing to expand all across the playing field. There's two kinds of people in the world right now. The people who get that we're at war and the people who don't. And if you're listening, you're the former. If you're not, you will be by the end of this podcast. This is a war, and a war that the VA continues to lose, which could mean catastrophe, especially for our greatest generation, millions of World War II veterans who continue to be lost by the minute, but also a catastrophe for all Americans. The VA is our national health care backstop, and that backstop's got more holes than the New York Knicks playing defense. More and more by the day.
Now, if you listen to this podcast, or you've seen me in the media, you know I've been sounding the alarm on this show and in the media on CNN, on MSNBC, last week with Rachel Maddow, and this week on Friday night with Chris Cuomo. And I continue to post daily updates on Twitter. But the coronavirus is in VA facilities nationwide. It's gotten into the bloodstream of the entire national healthcare network, and especially into our nursing homes. And now it's oozing out. Everyone can see it in nursing homes and facilities across the country. So as of this recording, at least 357 patients in VA care have died from the virus. Now, that figure is up 18 from Monday morning and continues to be a steady rise in deaths from the fast-spreading virus, which has killed nearly 40,000 people nationwide. But so far, 68 facilities across the country have lost at least one patient to the illness. And VA continues to pledge more masks for medical staff who are rationing supplies, while at the same time, medical center employees who've only been receiving one mask a week are protesting in Atlanta, in Brooklyn, and across the country. Of those fatalities, the veterans dying who are patients at VA, New York City alone accounts for one-third of those fatalities. Four VA sites in the metropolitan area, including East Orange, New Jersey, have totaled 128 deaths all just in the last few weeks. Now, you could say that that's just an isolated example, or it could be the tip of the iceberg. The death rate among VA patients who've contracted the virus is nearly 6.5%, a figure that keeps going up week after week. And ta-da! The VA Secretary, Robert Wilkie, has been feeling the pressure and finally did a legit TV interview and finally faced hard questions from my friend Stephanie Rule on MSNBC. If you haven't heard her visit on our show, go back and check it out. But based on Wilkie's awful performance, we can now see why he doesn't want to do tough interviews. Wilkie said he was very proud to have tested 60,000 people for coronavirus at VA total. But New York State now does that many tests in two days. He proudly said that VA has the lowest employee infection rate in the world. But they've only tested 60,000 people, and they don't even know how many are infected. And Wilkie finally stated how many VA employees had died. He said 19. But the VA is still not releasing those numbers publicly and only providing account of VA employees who work in the healthcare arm of the department. So Wilkie continues to say that VA is ready for COVID-19 and that frontline workers have adequate PPE. But VA nurses are protesting nationwide and filing lawsuits. And the VA's own internal memos show otherwise. And just to put a cherry on top of this stunning interview, Wilkie went all in on supporting Trump on hydroxychloroquine. He said, we know the device has been working. And he says, in stopping the progression of disease, despite vets dying from it. So there's that. And it's critical to underscore here. Wilkie is obscuring the overall COVID-19 veterans' deaths nationally by only reporting deaths that take place inside VA facilities. Most vets are dying at the nearest civilian hospitals or maybe in their homes. They're mixed into morgues with everyone else. And the number of Americans asking, where is Wilkie, that's the hashtag, continues to grow. I'll have more on Twitter daily and here on Angry Americans every week. If you know a veteran or you know anyone who cares about veterans, make sure they're subscribed to this podcast to get the latest. And we've covered the tragic situation in Holyoke, Massachusetts at the Soldiers' Home, where dozens of veterans have died. Last week, it was 44. 
Now that number is up to 66. 66 veterans have now died in one facility in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Governor Charlie Baker has advised flags be flown at half-staff until the end of this public health emergency in Holyoke and Chelsea and at the Veterans Cemetery in Agawam. But the president continues to be AWOL on this. Same thing with Wilkie. And last week, I told you there were more. Paramus, New Jersey, Stony Brook, New York, Richmond, Virginia, West Palm Beach, Florida, Rowan County, North Carolina, Scarborough, Maine. And now, there are even more. Outbreaks continue to spread like wildfire at state veterans nursing homes nationwide. East Vincent Township in Chester County, Pennsylvania, has 10 dead. Alex City, Alabama, 49 have tested positive. Two veterans are dead. Floresville, Texas, two are dead. Oxford, New York, at least 10 positive and one dead. And these are just the ones I know now. Nursing homes, and veteran nursing homes in particular, are ground zero for the pandemic. The New York Times had a story calling them death pits, saying that the virus has claimed at least 7,000 lives in U.S. nursing homes. A fifth of all U.S. virus deaths are now linked to nursing facilities. They're death pits. And as I said in the last episode, we need a national plan and a national leader for nursing homes specifically, and one for veterans nursing homes. Most of these states have deployed the National Guard in these facilities to try to get control of it. And VA Secretary Wilkie is AWOL. We need somebody like General Seminite from the Army Corps of Engineers, or maybe someone like General Honorary, or someone like General McChrystal. But we need maximum pressure on Trump and Congress to act now. If you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. But please, pay attention and remember them. The VA is under pressure. Will they make the shot or will they crumble? We will see. But the Department of Defense is having its share of problems too. And the pressure is piling up there. The numbers of active duty troops showing up positive and the number of dying is rising. And things on the USS Roosevelt are challenging to say the least. The number of positive coronavirus cases among the crew of the USS Theodore Roosevelt has now reached 710. And a U.S. sailor aboard the aircraft carrier who's died has been identified. The Navy disclosed his identity on Thursday. Aviation Ordnanceman Chief Petty Officer Charles Robert Thacker, 41, of Fort Smith, Arkansas, died on April 13th at the U.S. Naval Hospital in Guam of COVID-19. He was a guy that Captain Crozier was trying to protect before Modley fired him. And just in case you thought the world was taking the month off, the United States has assessed that Iran successfully launched a military satellite into orbit for the first time on Wednesday. So Iran is launching a military satellite into space. And that's a whole new kind of space jam. Everybody get up, it's time to slam now. We got a real jam going down. Welcome to the space jam. Our enemies are watching and our enemies are celebrating. So watch the Department of Defense and watch the VA. They are critical assets in our fight against the virus. And meanwhile, the biggest of all games and the biggest of all shots is still unfolding. The race for president. 
the tribes and the Democratic Party are finally uniting. Joe Biden is kind of laying low, and Bernie seems to be resting. Obama's picking his spots, and they all need to raise more money because Biden is way behind. Biden is nearly $187 million behind the Republican National Committee and Trump, who spent the last three years stockpiling his war chest. So if Biden raised a million dollars a day all the way to November, he still couldn't catch up. So despite all the chaos, Trump is feeling like he's got a hot hand. And he's even predicting a landslide. And a lot of people love Trump, right? A lot of people love me. You see him all the time, right? I guess I'm here for a reason, you know? To the best of my knowledge, I won. And I think we're going to win again. I think we're going to win in a landslide. So Trump's predicting a landslide. Biden did win a primary in Wyoming, by the way. There was a primary that happened. He won the Wyoming Democratic Presidential Caucus, which was postponed for two weeks and then scaled back to just mail-in ballots because of the coronavirus. But the results came two weeks after Bernie Sanders dropped out and endorsed Biden and is still the only candidate seeking the nomination. So voting began back when it was still a two-candidate race and Biden beat Sanders 72 to 28. And a whopping total of 15,400 votes were cast. Biden gets to 12 delegates and Sanders gets two. But here's a bigger issue. Everybody should be able to vote by mail or a secure computer or whatever it is, but they should be able to vote remotely. If I can get my bank account info securely on my phone, I should be able to vote. And this time right now in the middle of the pandemic has proved this more than ever before. In states like Georgia, Texas, Nevada, Florida, and others, state and party leaders are trying to change the way people vote to avoid a similar fate as in Wisconsin, where during a state of emergency, they still had an election and thousands of voters risked their health to stand in long lines. And since that election, state officials have now said that 19 people who either voted in person or worked at the polling state have tested positive for COVID-19. And that's outrageous. And speaking of outrageous, there's a new name that popped up in the headlines that may be entertaining jumping into the race. And it's not a name you would expect. Son of a bitch is dug in like an Alabama tick. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. Yep. Jesse the Body Ventura, former governor of Minnesota, is apparently considering entering the race as a Green Party candidate. I have Jesse Ventura stories that I will share with you another time, and I will tell you that I would love to have Governor Ventura on this show anytime. It will undoubtedly be entertaining. He is a soundbite machine, and he is a very, very interesting American, and always an angry American. But watch this space. Jesse, the body Ventura may be stepping on the floor soon. So will Biden finally get his ring, or will it forever evade him, like Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone, and Charles Barkley? We'll have to watch the game unfold. As Joe Biden seeks to win the championship, the pain and the carnage and the frustration of the coronavirus roars on all across the country. Many folks are depressed. Many folks are frustrated. But at the same time, many are stepping up. They're asking for the ball. They're setting picks. They're taking the shot. They're fighting the pain. They're preventing tragedies and they're helping each other. I tell you to look for the helpers. That's a theme of this show. And especially now. This is prime time for helpers. This is the fourth quarter, and we are throwing them the ball, and they're coming from all backgrounds. They're the role players. They're the Luke Longleys, the B.J. Armstrongs, the Horace Grants. The stars get the headlines, but the helpers are the folks that win championships and sometimes win the day, like this in Spain. 
That's the sound of a taxi driver in Spain who's taken patients to the hospital free of charge. And he got a call to pick up a patient from the hospital. And when he arrived, doctors and nurses surprised him with a standing ovation and an envelope of money. Helpers are sometimes people below the radar, like the taxi drivers. But sometimes they're people who are out in the spotlight. Hi, I'm Michelle Obama, and welcome to Mondays with Me, a series of stories with PBS Kids and Penguin Random House. I hope you enjoy Mondays with Me, and I can't wait to see you next week. Michelle Obama is reading books to the children of the world. And I got to tell you, as a parent of two small kids, it's fantastic. It's a huge help to me and to my family and to my kids. We watched it with my kids, and it was awesome. So Michelle Obama's stepping up to help, too. Helpers can be overseas. They can be taxi drivers, or they can be former first ladies, or they can even be delicious meat products. Got a minute? Then you've got time for a hot steak sandwich. Keep steak them frozen till you're ready to eat, then stick them in the frying pan. 60 seconds later, take them off the heat and fix them up any way you can. Try steak them on a roll with cheese. Top it any way you please. Steak them sandwich steaks. They're 100% pure beef and nothing else. Steak them for dinner, steak them for lunch, or any minute of the day you want to munch. Steak them, the 60-second meal. So the helpers can come from all kinds of places. But you might not expect them to come from a frozen meat company. Yet many have turned to the Steakum Twitter feed as a guiding voice for the pandemic. They tackle issues like misinformation, partisan divides, and the importance of science. There's a great article in the Washington Post all about Steakums. A recent tweet, for example, read, During this pandemic, it's vital to stay wary of charlatans peddling miracle cures that are all natural, such as colloidal silver or herbal remedies. Many people are afraid and extra susceptible to scams. Please counter falsities if you see them, both with data and compassion. So Stakeums is adding light instead of heat. It prompted Columbia University research virologist Angela Rasmussen to tweet, Stakeum is offering the sensible, rational defense of truth, repudiation of opportunism, and a call to humanity we all need right now. So if you don't already, you should follow Stakeum on Twitter. It's stake underscore mmm. U-M-M. And people are loving Stakem's Twitter account more than the Stakem's. Denver television anchor Kyle Clark said, Historians will long remember that America's moral compass in this time of trial was a frozen meat company. Is a social media manager of a frozen meat company eligible for the MacArthur Genius Grant? Asked Seth Maskett, director of the Center for American Politics at the University of Denver. And even Craigslist founder, my friend Craig Newmark, tweeted that he's so impressed with the company's post that he'll try out its beef. I highly recommend it, Craig. Steakums are delicious. So helpers can come in many forms, even a delicious meat company that's adding light instead of heat from a company that usually prefers heat. Helpers are what this country was founded on. And helpers are the kind of people you've met on this show and maybe in our online community and at our events. They're in the hospital ERs. They're fighting to save lives on the ground. As we continue to push through the quarantine, the social distancing, and all the other frustrations, One day we will be together again, and it will be real, and it will be thanks to the helpers. The helpers will support us if we get coronavirus. The helpers will be there for us and the ones we love. And the helpers will guide us through to our VC day, our victory over coronavirus day. One day we'll have concerts again. One day we'll have family barbecues again and Little League games again. And we'll all get together to watch Knicks games and Bulls games and Saints games and Jayhawks games and Duke games and even Patriots games. Because of leaders like David Aldrich. 
David is kind, hardworking, humble, thoughtful, and important. David was a kid who grew up in a hard area of D.C. and never saw the campus of American University until he became a student there. But he worked his ass off. He followed his dream. He's become a part of sports history and American culture for decades. David's a listener. He watches, he pays attention, he processes, he thoughtfully writes about the world unfolding around us. He'll help us take a pause. He'll reflect on what we've seen. He'll tell you a good sports story or two and tell us what we're going through and what the future will look like. The great Michael Jordan famously got cut from the varsity basketball team in his high school. It was a low point in his life. And he could have given up, but he didn't. He grew six inches and had ridiculous skills also, but he endured. And most importantly of all, Michael Jordan always motivated others with his game, with his words, and with his example. That's the kind of leader I wanted to be. I wanted my sons to be, and I hope we all can be. Before they drafted Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls were a doormat. An indoor professional soccer team regularly had more fans than the Bulls. But Michael Jordan made them the most popular team in the world. He brought them up. And together, we can do the same with our country in the days ahead. We can bring that competitive spirit. We can endure adversity and not just win, but build a dynasty, one that can stand the test of time, one that can endure, one that can matter. Michael Jordan once said, talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence wins championships. So in this episode, we're bringing a championship level of the four eyes to encourage teamwork and bring the title home. It's a Scotty Pippen of integrity. It's a Ron Harper of information. It's a Dennis Rodman of inspiration. And it's a Michael Jordan of impact. America's down right now, but we're far from out. And we've been down before. But we've rallied, stay focused, executed well, stuck together, and believed. We always believed. That's what made Michael Jordan different. That's what made the Bulls different. And that's what makes America different. And that's what makes us successful. And it's what makes us last. And it's what makes us matter. We'll have that VC day, our victory over coronavirus day. We'll have a day when we can play sports again with our friends where we can watch our kids play sports and we can go to sports games and watch the greats again and be together as a town, as a city, as a nation around our sports. It'll happen. From the three-point line to the designated hitter to the evolution of the helmet, sports always evolves. After the coronavirus, sports will continue to evolve. Life will continue to evolve. America will continue to evolve. But until then, Welcome to sports in a new America. Welcome to the future of sports. Welcome to the future of America. Welcome to the big game. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 56. 
Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, I am thrilled and honored to have a very, very special guest joining us today, a man whose work I've admired for most of my life. Um, you know him from your living room for the last couple of decades and is, in my view, one of not just the best sports writers, but one of the best and most important writers in America. The great and powerful David Aldridge joins us, sir. Thank you for wow. joining us. Paul, thank you, man. That's, that's quite an introduction. I really appreciate that. And thank you for what, you, what you've done and, and continue to do, man, for people who don't have a voice. You know, it, it, it means a lot to me that you're, that you're advocating and fighting for people that deserve that, our attention and more than just thanks for your service. You know what I mean? And so I appreciate what you do. I'm a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much. Well, first off, uh, you know, every conversation we're having now is always with a, an, an important, inspiring, and iconic American. You check all three of those boxes, but it's also the new COVID-19 world. Yeah. So you're in D.C. You've been a great ambassador for D.C. and an advocate for D.C. Can you tell us, you know, where are you? What's it like where you are? And, and if you can, give us some insight to life in D.C. right now. Well, I live in the city. Um, I've been in the city. You know, I'm from here. Uh, lived here my whole life. Um, and it's tough right now. It's just tough um, just to see so many uh, kind of iconic local businesses, especially, um, you know, driving by and seeing that they're closed, you know, and businesses that have been open my whole life here, you know, in, in town. And uh, it's, it's sad. Um, you think about the people um, that have operated those businesses, the people that depend on tips for, to make a living, um, you know, we think about people who work in hotels, uh, that aren't getting more than minimum wage. You know, you think about bartenders, you think about, I just think about the whole, the whole connectivity we have as a society, right? We kind of all take it for granted, I think. And you don't realize how many people you touch, um, in the course of a given day or a given week. But, um, you know, those connections are real and they're meaningful. And when they're severed, they have real consequences for people. So, you know, it, it's sad. I'm sure it's sad, you know, everywhere right now. I mean, I've got so many friends in New York and they're all being touched by it, if not directly, certainly indirectly, whether it's a family member or a friend or somebody. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard in D.C. right now um, to see the streets empty. You see nobody walking. I mean, we, we understand that's what we need to do. We have to do it. But it doesn't make it any less sad to know that they had to, you know, close the cherry blossoms off so that people couldn't go down there and watch them and congregate. So, you know, all the, the zoos closed, you know, all the things that we all kind of take for granted, um, you know, is happening here. And you feel a sense of impotence almost that you're in what is supposedly the most powerful city in the world. And we have no, we have no powers. It's Oz. You know what I mean? Like there's no, it's, we're all, we're all having to deal with the same things as everybody else. Yeah. I was, uh, I think it was last year I was in DC um, during the white house correspondence dinner. I always feel like DC and the Hill is such a, it's such a contrast, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> and, uh, I went, yeah. I mean, I went out into Franklin park and I interviewed homeless people yeah. like uh, two blocks away from Trump's hotel. Right. Right. And that, that yeah. contrast seems like a, a constant part of, of existence in D.C., life in D.C. And, and D.C. is in the shadow of the Capitol and often seems forgotten by the Capitol. So we've seen the mayor and so yeah. many other people advocating for the district in ways that are powerful. I mean, we haven't really gotten into this in the show. but We talk a lot about independence. How do you feel about D.C. statehood? 
I mean, you grew up oh, there. You went to school at American, sure. right, in, in D.C. Sure. How do you feel about D.C. statehood? Oh, man. I, you know, look, if you've grown up in the city and you, you understand what disenfranchising is all about and, ha- and it's been my entire life here, you know, paying federal taxes and having no representation in Congress, you know, we're the only municipality in the country that has to do, that does that, you know, and you, you, you mentioned it. Well, I mean, there's official DC, there's, there's the political DC. If you're from the city, you don't, you don't have any real contact with that, with that world. That's a different world. That's not a world that I'm used to. I'm not a part of it. I don't necessarily want to be a part of it. You know, um, I grew up in the city with, you know, my father was a mailman. My mother was a nurse, you know, so I have a special affinity for the nurses and doctors that are uh, fighting this fight every day. Um, so it, it's two cities, you know, and again, the fact that we were not treated like all the other states were with regard to the, to the first bailout bill, you know, it just speaks to the continual kind of systematic disenfranchisement that we've had to suffer through my whole lifetime. And and before my lifetime, they didn't even have a non-voting representative in Congress. At least we have that now. So it's always a problem. And you hope that I've always said, Paul, you don't want to make DC a state. That's fine with me, but then I shouldn't have to pay taxes. You know what I mean? Like one or the other, you know, it's fine with me if you don't want to make us a state for whatever political reasons you have, but then, then eliminate the federal income tax for people that live in the city. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a reasonable argument. There's no license plate say taxation without representation. Right, exactly. Right. DC license plate, anybody who's been down Exactly. There. Well, I see you're, you've been broadcast, you're, you're a, a, a broadcast expert, you know, a veteran in the space. I see you're in what looks like an, an addict <laughs> uh, away from your, from, your, from your family. But I want to ask you, as I do everybody, when yeah. you are uh, taking a break from D.C. or taking a break from sports, what is your adult beverage of choice, David? Oh, it's a Bacardi and Coke. That's really? My da- yeah, my dad's drink. That was my dad's drink. It's my drink. <laughs> Following in my father's footsteps, that's that's my go-to. Um, you know, so you know, some sort of uh, well, can't be Barbadian rum because I did that once when I was in when I was a young man, <laughs> and that didn't turn out too well. <laughs> so I just stick with the Bacardi and a, and a Coke right now. That's that's, that's kind of what I roll. That's with. a great choice. Usually, when we did these in person, we could share the drink together. So we'll have to. Put a peg in that and do it. Absolutely. Once all this passes. Sure. Um, but you are such a, a, a great voice on not just sports, but American culture mm-hmm. uh, and the intersection of economics and race and, uh, and entertainment, so many other components. I really was eager to have this conversation with you because we've never seen a sports environment like this. Mm-hmm. I don't think ever, right? I mean, right. even during world wars, you know, sports shut down temporarily, but parts right. continued and they recovered. Can you kind of set the stage in your view, um, you know, how big of a moment is this in the history of sports? And, and maybe a very big question, what do you think sports looks like now in the future? Mm-hmm. Everything's different. The NBA is shut down. They're talking about reopening. I want to go deeper into that. Mm-hmm. But on a very macro scale, you know, frame up this moment and your thoughts, if you would, please. Well, I, look, I certainly feel like, you know, sports has kind of a unique place in the culture. It's kind of the escape, right? It's what people want to do when they don't want to think about uh, coronavirus or 9-11 or whatever calamity has, you know, hit our country in a given point in time. You could always kind of fall back on, well, at least they're still playing baseball or at least they're still playing football and I can watch a game and forget about it for three hours. So um, that's no longer available to people. And, you know, sports is 
the, the unique thing about sports certainly is, you know, you, you go to a, you go to a concert, right? It's whoever's there at the concert, right? It's, it's 18,000 people sharing that experience together, but it's just those 18,000 people, right? <laughs> so um, the difference with sports, of course, is that you have both the people in the arena and then you have, you know, factors of 20, 30, 40, 50 times more people watching it on TV. So there's a communal experience that really cuts across most, not all, but most racial economic lines. Um, you know, you can always talk to somebody about sports and the fact that you're, you're denied being able to have that experience with other people, whether watching it on TV and talking about it on Twitter, which is what a lot of people do now, or, or going to a game and sharing that experience with fellow fans. It's just, it's, it's so difficult, um, I think, for people to accept. And I understand that. Um, and, and, but, but I'm, you know, it, it concerns me that I think people want the sports back because they want to have that sense of normalcy, but man, you, it, it's, it's going to be very difficult, I think, Paul, to, to restart, especially the team sports. I think you could probably start the PGA Tour, right? You could probably do that um, with no fans. You could, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a player and it's the player's caddy, essentially, right? That's it. There's no, they don't have an entourage. It's not coaches, you know? So you could probably do that one. You could, you might be able to do tennis. Tennis has more people involved, but, yeah, yeah. but you could potentially get tennis back online. But when you talk about baseball, basketball, football, especially with, you know, 53 in the pros and, you know, 80 in college, um, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you start that back up um, with the close contact, the physicality that people have in those sports. Um, it's going to be very difficult. I just did a piece for the athletic, this week yeah. about the Japanese B league, which is a basket pro basketball league in Japan. Yeah. I wanted that, to talk about that piece, especially Yeah, they, they stopped in really, the middle. really insightful, right? Yeah. The yeah. NBA, they, the NBA, you know, is, uh, is shut down now. Right. And yeah. We're, we're now like maybe more than any other sport. We're like, the, the clock is running out. Right. Right. It looks like That's NBA right. is going to be gone. Right. Maybe they'll salvage it. But I actually wanted to ask you about that piece specifically because I thought yeah so powerful and, and you can go deeper, but you describe, you know, the B league where they reopened for a bit and then had to reclose. Right. Can also, uh, what they call the, the biosphere concept. Yeah. Right, right, right. Can you talk about that as well, please? Yeah. Well, start, we'll start with the, the, the B league you know, it's a, it's a 36 teams and two divisions and they have a semi pro third division, but it's mainly the two 36, the 36 teams, 18 in each league. And they tried to restart, you know, they stopped in February, when the pandemic was starting to really take off, unfortunately, in China, especially, it didn't really, there's lots of different theories about why it didn't really take off in Japan as quickly as it did in other places, but it didn't. Um, and so they tried to come back in mid-March and they played exactly one weekend, two games, and they had to shut it down again because you had one team that had eight, eight players and coaches come down with COVID. You had a referee get sick. You had Three got three American players refused to play because they didn't want to be susceptible to it, um, and so it was just a lot of chaos, you know. And so they had to shut down again. And so the reason why I wrote that is because I, you know, they had good intentions. It's I know there was no villain, you know. They wanted to play again. They wanted fans to have an outlet again. They didn't play in front of any fans. The, all the games were, you know, were empty arenas. They tried to do everything to keep the, you know the ball sanitized and everything else that they right. could. Um, and it's still 
couldn't keep it out. You know, it's just it's a virus, man. I mean, what are you going to do? So, so, and it's a very contagious one. So, you know, the problem for the NBA and for any league is how do you justify one death? How do you do that? Like, <laughs> right. Yep. I mean, I've been, what I've been saying to people, Paul, and you're familiar, very familiar, I'm sure, with the, with the John Kerry quote, how do you ask a man to be the last person to die for a mistake? Right. Right? <laughs> so, well, here, here you're asking, how do you be the first guy to die? Right, right. So, you know, yeah. I mean, how do you, you know, whatever league it is, if somebody gets sick and dies because you started playing again, what is that? You know, where do you go from there? You know, I mean, that's so, so that's the problem I think for any league in terms of what the NBA is trying to do. They want to have, as you mentioned, this biosphere concept where they bring every team to one city and they're talking about Vegas, you know, okay, maybe you could do it. You got enough hotel space. You could keep everybody kind of isolated from one another and they would try to keep travel absolutely limited. They have everybody quarantined for two weeks prior. They get tested. Obviously, if they were positive, they couldn't come. But if they're negative, they could come and they would get tested every day while they were there. And, you know, it sounds theoretically possible. And, and certainly both the league and the players have a financial incentive to continue playing. Um, but I don't know, man. I just think it's going to be difficult. And to you, as you mentioned, at some point, you just run out of days. You know, I mean, yeah. you just don't have, you, they don't want to, they want to try and start next season on time in October. Um, and so you have to finish in August at the absolute latest to give, give them some time off. So it's going to be a tight window, very tight window. So the way it would work is they'd basically turn all of Vegas into a biosphere, right? Yeah. And, and the Nets would have, you know, the Hard Rock Cafe. And right. The Thunder would have the Sands or whatever. Right, right? exactly. And they'd all yeah. be in this contained bubble and they would never leave. Right. That's it's the like idea. Yeah. Demented <laughs> sci-fi film of the future. Right, right, right. And you got to right. hope that a bunch of 22-year-old millionaires follow the rules, right? Yeah. <laughs> doing in Manhattan right. or anywhere exactly. else, nobody in, nobody out. But right. And it would also ideal, you know, I guess, uh, uh, theoretically, it would regenerate some of the economy in Vegas as well. Right. Um, but I guess but I you'd have no fans. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. <laughs> There's I'm no sure fans. They, uh, <laughs> yeah, they want to broadcast it, right? And I right, guess, right, uh, right. So I guess I want to take this a step further with you if I can, David, right? Yeah. So uh, how far can the leagues go? before they theoretically go bankrupt or start to lose so much money that they have to do something, right? right. If you think of an airlines going bankrupt, yeah. I have Tom Colicchio on, he says as many as 70% of restaurants could be gone after this. I mean, we right. the XFL has, has, has imploded now, right. Right? even faster than most folks predicted. Mm -hmm. But, but um, at what point does it, does it reach a crossroads? Mm. where, you know, a league, and maybe it's not the NBA, maybe it's a league that's more uh, precarious financially, says, okay, players, you got to play or you don't get paid. Right. And then we have maybe the ultimate uh, union dispute, like players players versus owners dispute we've ever had, right? Because yeah. the, owner, the players are going to run out of money yeah. at some point, mm. and unless the league keeps paying them. Mm -hmm. and, and at some point that becomes financially, you know, unsustainable. So projections yeah. are that this could go on for 18 months, yeah. Uh, you know, where do you see that going? And are there leagues that are particularly vulnerable in your view? Well, I, you know, I, you know, I, I would, I think about college basketball because they depend so much on March Madness, right? They depend so much on the tournament to generate the, the revenue. I think it's something like 70% of their revenue yeah. comes from, from the tournament. And, that revenue in turn is used by the individual colleges to kind of fund their sports, right? And so we've already seen, I think it was University of Cincinnati is going to have to eliminate some sports. 
sure. um, because the rev- they're not going to get the revenue that they expected this year. Um, and so that could potentially be a problem. The difference with the pro sports leagues, I think at, at, in the, in the, at the very least, is they're unionized, right? And so in, in the case of the NBA, the union has already agreed with the NBA on a certain number, a certain amount of salary reduction. If the season's canceled, the players will give the owners a certain amount of that money back to kind of not make them whole, but at least ease the, ease the pinch so that they should be okay for this year. And presumably they would do this as long as the pandemic is in effect and games aren't being played. And also the pro leagues have lines of credit that they can access, you know, billion dollar lines of credit um, so that they have a little bit more cushion than, than a smaller league, certainly a startup league like the XFL that, you know, didn't have that kind of financial cushion. They had nothing to fall back on. Um, but the big, the big four of, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, I think should be okay going forward, at least for the next year, I would think. So that's it, a good pivot into the NFL. So yeah. this week is the virtual NFL draft, right? Right. Which is going to be surreal. They're going to essentially do it online, but there have been even concerns about letting film crews into the living rooms of players that are going yeah. to get signed for that big moment when, you know, Bubro or uh, Tua or someone else, you know, gets finds out when that phone call comes. Yeah. Now it's going to be, I guess, on Skype, right? I've been, yeah, to, yeah. The draft. <laughs> I've been to the draft, and it, it's one of the most exciting, I think, moments, not just in sports, but in America. Yeah. See these families and these kids that have worked so hard that entire life in that moment where you can yeah. see their, their socioeconomic future change immediately right. Right? And for generations of their family if they don't screw it up. Right. It's a, yeah. all yeah. that hard work, all that. It's really the American dream, like manifest. Right. Yeah. And, and, and especially the, the sports American dream. But the NFL draft is, is going to happen. I mean, they may be drafting for a season that never comes. So yeah. what are your thoughts on that? And I can't have, you know, the great David Eldridge on without asking you to talk about Brady and now Gronk <laughs> going to Tampa Bay. Yeah. Uh, as Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, is pushing to reopen the states. I mean, if <laughs> it was a team that was going to come online quickly, it'd probably be Tampa. Right. Maybe you see teams relocating to, to South Dakota. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. but, but can you break down your thoughts on, on the draft and, and, and all the, the chaos that's happening in the league right now? Right. Well, I mean, the NFL, you know, is kind of the, the big, the number one sport, right? It's the Colossus, I think, in, in terms of team sports in, in, the, in the States, certainly. Um, you know, I think short term, they'll be okay. The, the draft, the only thing that's really affected is that first round where you see the guys go up on the stage and they get the hug from Goodell and all that. And that's a great moment. Don't get me wrong. It's a terrific moment. Um, but from the first, after the first round, everybody's at home anyway, right? So, I mean, that's usually how it works. Um, so they, they should be okay. The question is you put, as you brought up was, you know, what happens to the season? You know, when can they start the season? They've already missed a lot of the off season work that they would be doing that they would have done already and that they would do in the next six weeks with their draft picks that they bring online this weekend. So it's going to be difficult, man. I mean, I've, I've covered enough football and I know enough football players to know that the only way you get good at playing football is playing football. There's no, there's no substitute for it, you know, and there's no substitute for the hitting and the physicality of it. Um, and so, it's going to be very difficult. And you wonder about injuries. I certainly will um, whenever they come back. Now, uh, you know, I think they probably will. My guess is you'll, you'll see a very limited preseason schedule, but you have to have at least one or two practice games after all this time off. 
Um, you know, what happens with Tampa? I mean, you know, Brady's no kid and he's going to need to, he, he can't, you don't want him to get rusty. You know, he's got to learn a new system anyway. At least he's got Gronk to throw to. So, you know, and they got a smart coach down there in Bruce Arians and knows what he's doing. So they, you know, they could probably figure out ways to mitigate that, but it's going to be, it's still going to be a challenge for them. You know, it would be a challenge with no problems, but certainly with this, it's going to be a major challenge for them. David, you got great contacts across all the leagues, right? You're, you're a guy that's trusted, um, that's respected. You know, I, I think for folks that don't know, it was interesting to see your journey starting out at the Washington Post yeah. and transitioning, you know, hard into sports and now making the leap to the athletic, which is really kind of at the forward edge of where media is going. But you're, you're, you know, you're talking to players all the time. You had Barkley on your podcast, which was fantastic. And I love the podcast <laughs> and I love the conversations you have. But it's clear you have a trust with the players. Um, can you talk about that trust and, and, you know, an insight into, into what that's like as a journalist? We've had a lot of different kinds of journalists on this show mm -hmm. at a time where the president is calling journalists enemy of the state. Yeah. Right? And that, includes, <laughs> that includes Marines like James Laporta we had on, and theoretically right. it, it includes you, right? Yeah, right. But, right. Um, <laughs> but talk about, you know, your lessons learned in, in how to develop those relationships and, and, and what you're hearing now. Like, what are players yeah. thinking and concerned about and talking about in, in this time? Well, I, you know, I think the trust thing is just, it, you know, I hope, to, I hope that it's a matter of the fact of the function of me over the years, you know. I never try to pretend I know more than I know. <laughs> and I never try to pretend that I'm someone I'm not, you know, and I never played football at a high level. So I have no idea what it's like to be a, an offensive tackle. So I ask them, you know what I mean? <laughs> so so I, I try not to pretend that I know more than I know. And if I don't know, I tell you, hey, I don't, uh, I don't understand this. Explain this to me, right? So, um, and I think they appreciate that because you're talking about their jobs and their livelihood and they want people to get it right. And you went to the courtesy, you had the courtesy of asking them, you know? And so I always feel like if you, if you're fair to people, they'll be fair to you. Um, if you try to be a wise guy and a smart ass and, and, you know, try to, you know, kill people in print or on TV that, you know, that doesn't last, man. I mean, you know, that has a, that has a shelf life um, because people remember things, you know, and they're human beings. And, and I never wanted to make it about me. You know, and, you know, there's not, most people in my business don't, but there's a few, you know, there's a few who want it, want to call attention to themselves. And I don't, you know, it's just not who I am. Um, but there's a lot of people like me, Paul, there's a lot of reporters that just want to get it right. That's the motivation for 99% of the people that do this for a living. We just want to get it right. Um, you know, but we have to ask, sometimes we have to ask tough questions and that's the job, you know, and if you don't want to do that, then this isn't the job for you, you know, so you got to do it. Mm. And what, 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 what's the chatter? I mean, I hate to, to, to consider athletes a monolith, right? And yeah, yeah. But what do you feel, where do you feel like players are at right now? I mean, is everybody, you know, watching and waiting? I mean, nobody wants to be the guinea pig, right? Nobody right. wants to be the yeah. first league to go. Yeah. Um, but there comes a point where they got to stop, you know, shooting Instagram videos in their backyard, right? Sure. But what, where do you feel like the leadership is? And obviously the most notable players like a LeBron or yeah. a Brady, it seems like they're going to have an, an outsized influence yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned the NBA. I think that's important because their union is so strong. Yeah. But, but what do you what do you hear and who do you look to to be the leaders for all of sports in a time like this? Right. Well, look, I think, you know, these are, as you know, the most competitive people that you could put together. Right. I mean, it's amazingly hyper competitive people. 
they want to play. Look, guys want to play. They want to compete. They want a chance to win a championship. You know, whether you, you haven't started the season yet, like baseball and football, or you're in the middle of your season, like basketball and hockey were, you know, you want to, the whole point of this is to find out who wins, right? <laughs> so, I mean, uh, they want to, they want to find out who wins. So, but they, but they are responsible in understanding that it's not going to be something that's simple to do. And so I think you have, uh, whether it's baseball, you know, baseball was talking about doing something similar, bringing everybody out to Arizona. Right. And, you know, some guys were immediately like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. And other guys were like, eh, you know, <laughs> not so sure uh, for a bunch of different reasons. So I think they, they're, they are pretty reflective of our society at large. I think most people understand that if the best way to kind of slow flatten the curve is to stay home then stay home. But there's some that are kind of restless and want to get back out. And, and certainly most of them want to resume playing as soon as possible and as safely as possible. But I think these are guys that don't mind risk. You know, I think they understand risk, uh, physical risk, certainly. Um, and so after a while, I think you're going to see more guys say, Hey, you know, we understand that there's a, this is a gamble, but I'm willing to take that gamble because I want to keep playing. Yeah, it kind of, in some ways, it kind of feels like uh, the national anthem moment. Yeah. Right? Where, like, it was like, who is going to step forward? And you probably mm -hmm. couldn't have predicted mm -hmm. who was going to be vocal, who was going to be silent. Right. Um, but in this show, you know, we've really covered the intersection of sports and politics which I think is impossible to decouple, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, some um, media places recently which have said, you know, like ESPN, others have said, you know, we're only doing sports. We're not doing politics. Mm -hmm. I don't know where you draw that line anymore, right? Now, especially yeah. now because right. the leagues are going to be dependent upon policymakers. Mm -hmm. like Dana White's trying to pull together UFC fights, and he's exploring every location under the sun. Yeah. And it could be that a governor or a, or a county executive or, a, you know, a reservation leadership says, okay, you can do it here. Yeah. Um, but, but do you, do you see any leaders or voices emerging that you think are kind of built for this? You know, I think if, you know, on the, on the basketball piece, that's my area of expertise. So I would stick with that, you know, for now, at least I think, you know, LeBron certainly is a guy that I would look to, to kind of provide some leadership. Chris Paul's another guy, um, you know, who certainly is the president of the players union, a very vocal guy. You've got some guys on the executive committee like Andre Iguodala and and CJ McCollum, and there's some really thoughtful, smart guys that I think will will take a lead on this um, because I think the players in the NBA certainly much more so than in the NFL. The players really kind of run the show. I mean, right, you know, right, it's it's right. their league, and so what they want to do is going is what's going to happen. And so my suspicion is that you know they've been talking to the league this whole time about how to do this, so. I think they'll come up with something. I think they'll come up with something that's palatable enough for the majority of players that they can get it through and get a season finished. Now, whether that's going to be going straight to the playoffs, having all 30 teams, having just the playoff teams, that I don't know. Um, that's going to be a, that's going to be a, you know, logistics question as much as anything else. Can you do this? Right. Can you do this safely? Um, you know, and then we obviously are all kind of, running on the parallel track of testing and when they come up, do they come up with a vaccine anytime in the next year or is it going to be 18 months? Is it going to be two years? So, um, but I, I think 
going, certainly going, I think in the summer it's different because people can just go outside at least theoretically um, and do something to enjoy themselves. Um, but I think when you get back to the fall, it's going to be hard not to play. It's going to be hard, yeah. you know, as, as, as this fall comes and then leading into winter, if we're still not playing, it's going to be awfully difficult to, to keep, keep leagues from fi- figuring out something to do. Mm. Um, your story, I think, is, is inspiring and part of why I wanted to talk to you, but I don't want to have you on the show and not take you in the way, way back machine. Yeah. <laughs> ask you a question I ask of, of all our guests, whether it was in D.C. or somewhere else. David, mm-hmm. Alex, what, what was your first car? My first car was a Chevy Chevette, <laughs> a blue Chevy Chevette um, that my mother had. And she let me, she, she look, gave it to me essentially. Um, and I drove that around college uh, while I was in college and for the first several years when I was out, out of college. Um, yeah, it was, didn't have much of anything, but it got me where I needed to go, Paul. <laughs> that was the important thing. What, what year was it and what color was it, David? It was, it was a, I think it was like a, I want to say it was like an 81 Chevette and it was blue. It was light blue. <laughs> and it was tiny, but you know. Like a North Carolina blue, like a baby blue or what kind it of It was, blue? no, it wasn't powder blue. It was more like a, and it wasn't a dark blue. I'm trying to think like, what's, what would be a good blue you know, like the Thunders Road uniforms. It was like oh, yeah. that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that kind of blue. <laughs> there be a sports color weeks, right? Especially at a time where uh, it's it's been. You know, one of the, my criticisms early on was, you know, as the, it seemed like there, there, I still believe there are two groups of people. There, there are a group of people that believe we're at a, na- a nation and a world at war against the virus, mm-hmm. and there are a group of people who don't. Right, ninety-seven mm-hmm. percent of the country right now is shut down. Three percent is not. Yeah. Um, but in the early stages of this, I felt like there was a bit of tone deafness in, mm-hmm. in the sports world, yeah. uh, especially because it was signing time and free agent time. And yeah. Brady, I, I was criticizing Brady quite a bit because he signed his big contract right, in his right. mansion. I was in New York City with sirens outside my door yeah, yeah, yeah. running into hospitals. So right. I feel like there's, you know, thankfully that shifted a little bit now. Mm-hmm. The league's going to focus on COVID-19 during the draft, but I, I really, I hope that there'll be this rush of energy from the, the, the players to, to really, you know, use their voices to make an impact. Yeah. Um, but there's also some anger on the flip side. Some of these people who are protesting in places like Michigan and others saying, you know, I want my sports. That's why mm-hmm. we need to reopen. So there's, there's anger and frustration, I think, happening on all sides, but you're a very thoughtful guy. Uh, so I want to ask you another question I ask of, of all our guests. David, yeah. Alfred, what, what makes you angry? Hypocrisy. <laughs> Hypocrisy makes me angry. Um, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind there being rules as long as we all follow them. You know, <laughs> so um, and so when and I and and bullying um, of any kind, whether it's physical or emotional or economic, um, I just I just detest that. Um, and you know, I, I'm a big believer in. You know, we have we we all are on this planet, right? And so, to get the most out of this planet, we all got to kind of figure out how to do this together, right? So, um, and so, and again, I'm fine if you say everybody stops at a red light, but everybody's got to stop at the red light if that's the rule, right? So, you know what I mean? So that's what I that's what really angers me is that I think there's a lot of do as I say, not as I do in this country right now, and it's it's troubling because I think it. it 
it continues to divide us um, unnecessarily. And I think we could do so much more if we work together than if we continue with this tribalism that we're doing now, mm. where we, we're, we're, we're not ever pulling in the same direction on anything. I mean, this country, we've, we've seen what can, this country can do when we're all pulling in the same direction. We can do some pretty impressive stuff. <laughs> you know, we have, we, have a, we have an incredible work ethic and we have an incredible ability to produce things that matter in people's lives if we're all on the same page. And we haven't been on the same page for a while. I'd like us to get back to it if we could. Mm, I appreciate that. And I think you've, you've been a leader who's led by example. I know a lot of folks consider you a role model and appreciate the integrity and the way you've approached your craft and, and your life. Um, but you're, you're also kind of touching on something that, that I wanted to get into, which is we've never had in my lifetime a president who's so aggressively attacked yeah. sports figures even mm -hmm. manipulated, right? I mean, the national anthem is just one piece, but now right. it's become an issue of, um, you know, shut up and dribble, right. or, you know, are they going to come to the White House for, after a championship or not? Yeah. Um, you know, I, as much as you're comfortable, um, your thoughts on the president and yeah. the climate he's creating and, and his leadership or their lack of in, in this time? Well, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. Let's, let's be blunt about it. Um, I don't think he is a serious person <laughs> um, and he's in a serious job, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any animosity towards him. If he wants to be a rich guy living a rich guy's life. Okay. That's you're right. You know, but when you, when you, in, when you involve other people who didn't ask to be involved, that's when I have a problem with it. And so, um, you know, we can be a great, nation or we can be a small petty nation. And I, I just think we're better than this. I just think we're a better country than this. Um, it doesn't, when I, when I say that, I'm not, I'm not ignoring the history of this country. I understand, I'm a black guy, I understand the history of this country. <laughs> okay, I understand the racial history of this country. Um, but I also understand that there were times, rare though they may be, there were times where we, we moved forward. You know, we said, look, let's try to do this a little better than we've been doing it, you know? And you, we could get back to that if we had people who wanted to get back to that. And I think appealing to people's kind of base instincts is not a way to govern. You don't govern by, you know, attacking other people. I just don't think that's the way you govern. That's, it doesn't, it doesn't move us forward in any direction. You know, um, I may have disagreed with, George Bush, Ronald Reagan about a great many policies, but at least they had some, yeah. you know, so, you know, so it, this is just the presidency by tweet. I mean, that's not, that's not how you forget inspiring people. It's just basic leadership. You know, you know, if, if ever there was a moment where everybody would put their politics aside and say, lead us. You know, we're scared. People are scared. People are dying. Lead us and tell us what to do and we'll do it, you know. Um, but, but tell us intelligently, you know, tell us with facts what we should be doing. Um, I think people would do that in this, in this particular climate. And to see it be the same kind of, I mean, for a president to say I'm not responsible for anything, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. what? What is that? You know, that's a complete abdication of leadership. So yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I, I was hoping for better, but I expected the worst and we're getting mm. what I expected. Mm. Maybe in uh, stark contrast, as we have this conversation, 
one of the things that many Americans are sharing is this uh, ESPN series, The Last Dance. Yeah. Right? And, and it's really fascinating and fantastic. Two, for the folks that don't know, two episodes were dropped this past Sunday, and I think they're going to drop two every week for right, five for weeks, right? Five weeks, right. And, right. and really, you know, it's, it's so far, um, like the, 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 the documentary series, I want to sit down my son at some right. point to explain yeah. to him the Michael Jordan that I saw. Right, mm -hmm. and the bulls that I saw, but it's a real insight into Michael Jordan and into that time and into America. That's yeah. what makes it so big, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's a cameo by uh, a certain person, uh, in contrast to Trump, of course, uh, President Barack Obama, who is labeled as Chicago resident, right? Former Chicago like, resident, former right? Former Chicago <laughs> resident. <laughs> former president, Chicago resident is his Chiron, <laughs> which is genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, but this seems like a moment, right? Like yeah. we aren't sharing a whole lot of things. I had Jeffrey Wright on the show. Right, Westworld, right. Westworld has become a moment we're all sharing yeah. now, right? Right. right? Food with Tom Colicchio I had on. We're talking yeah. about food as a moment. But The Last Dance is really good. Yeah, it is. And, and, but can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and your thoughts on it now? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just glad that, that people under, let's say, 35 – probably even if they remember Jordan, they, they were kids. They don't really, they didn't really understand it. Even if they saw him, I think that I'm, I'm glad they're getting to see kind of the totality of the guy and whether you like him or not, and you don't have to like him. I understand that. I mean, he can be abrasive and off-putting to a lot of people. Um, but if you want to understand why he was the way he was, I think this, this show shows it to you. It's just, he's just wired differently than other people. <laughs> it's just, you know, uh, I've never seen in 30 years a guy as competitive as this, as that guy was. Um, and it permeated every fiber of his being every moment he was awake. Um, and you can decry that, but it, but it's what, he, that's who he was. And that's why he was so driven. And that's why he was so maniacal um, in terms of winning, you know, he wasn't running for, you know, father of the year, you know, teammate of the year or anything like that. He was running, he was trying to win championships. And in that time, Paul, that's what you, that's what a lot of people did. He was no different than Bird or Magic or Isaiah Thomas. They were all lunatics, you know, um, and they all were tough on their teammates. They all, you know, did yelled at their teammates when they weren't doing what they thought they should be doing. So, um, you had to be that way back then. Maybe you don't have to be that way now, but back then with the rules, the, word, the, the way they were then, you had to be that way. So I'm glad people are getting to see this. And, and it's, you know, I remember Kevin McHale, after Jordan retired the last time, I remember Kevin McHale saying to me, you know, in 15 years, they're going to forget about Michael Jordan. And I said, you're nuts, man. They're never going to forget about Michael Jordan. And he was right. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was right out of sight, out of mind. And so I'm glad that people who didn't get to see him play, and now you got you got to remember now, this is a generation now. I mean, he, yeah. he came back and played in Washington, but that, that was kind of not really, you know, what people remember. Um, you know, he retired 22 years ago. So, I mean, that's, that's a generation, you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that never saw him play and don't know what the fuss was all about, and I'm glad they're getting to see it. Yeah, you're, you're great in it. Um, I don't know you. if you're in it a lot in the episodes to come. But I think it was maybe Costas or someone says, mm -hmm. you know, there's uh, there was Babe Ruth, there's there's Muhammad Ali, yeah. and Michael Jordan. Just right. in terms of his impact, you know, you, we could argue greatest player of all time. Right. My uneducated view, I think he is. Mm -hmm. but, but but I think you know less arguably 
the most important player of all time, right? right? In terms of how he shaped the world on the global stage with the Olympics, right? And the corporate components and his cultural influence, right? Mm -hmm. I I think that's where his magnitude is really uh, now being fully appreciated. But do you have a a story? You covered him, you you met him, you were around him, you're in the doc. And any Michael Jordan story that you want to share that you feel like is one folks need to know? Well, I mean, yeah, the story I always tell Paul is that when I was covering the, the Bullets, they were the Bullets then, before they became the Wizards, I was the beat writer. Um, and the Bullets played a back-to-back two games and two nights with the Bulls. The first game was in Chicago, then everybody got on a plane, flew back to D.C., they played the next night in D.C. So the first night in, in Chicago, uh, the Bullets had a guard at the time named Bradford Smith, who was a first-round pick, decent player, not great, but a decent player. And Bradford Smith had the game of his life. Just had the game of his life. He scored 37 points, not all of them against Jordan, but a lot of them against Jordan. Um, and the Bulls, the Chicago still won the game, but the story was, hey, this kid scored 37 points on Michael Jordan, right? And after the game, I was there, so I'm not guessing. <laughs> you know, LeBradford Smith was very complimentary. He was like, hey, you know, it was, you know, it was just my, it just, I was lucky. Michael Jordan's still the best, blah, blah, blah. So the next night, they're in Washington, same two teams, and Jordan scores 36 points against LeBradford Smith in the first half of the game. Wow. <laughs> 36 and a half. <laughs> and the story that comes out of this afterwards is that Michael Jordan claims that LeBradford Smith was dismissive of him the first night and kind of patted him on the butt and said, hey, nice game, Mike, you know, and walked off the court. And he was angry, and that fueled him to this performance the next night. The problem is, the story's complete bullshit. (laughs) He made it up. He completely made up this story about LeBranford Smith just to have something to motivate him the next night to go out there and destroy this guy. And that's that's Michael Jordan. That's who he was. Like, it didn't matter. he, whatever slight, real or imagined, he would put into this blast furnace and, and just it stoke himself into a rage <laughs> that he would use to play against whoever it was he was playing that night. And that's, that's who he was, man. <laughs> wow. I, I think it, it's, such a, it's such an interesting time for this conversation to be happening because it's an exploration of leadership. And you get to see you know, Phil as a coach and you get yeah. to see Jerry Krause as a GM and you get to see Jordan as a player and Pippen as a player right. and all these other, you know, folks in this, in this amazingly colorful cast. I mean, even for younger folks to be able to see Rodman as a serious player, right? right. right. <laughs> who's flying to North Korea and doing crazy shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what a six, seven time, um, you know, uh, all NBA guy and, and defensive, you know, force. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but taking another step back, maybe something else that's happening in this time, mm-hmm. uh, this week is the 16th anniversary of the death of Pat Tillman. Yeah. Um, and I've obviously covered veterans issues, national defense, security, war. And I felt like that was really an important time, David, because it was the first time people felt like they lost someone they knew. Mm-hmm. So few people actually had somebody serving in the military. It's less right. than one half of 1%. But right. when Pat Dil- Tillman died, 
people felt like they knew Pat Tillman. Yeah. Right? Every sports fan knew the story. Even people who weren't sports fans respected this guy. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like in some ways it was a tipping point in terms of the public support because they felt a real sense of loss. Mm-hmm. Talented guy who didn't have to do it was gone. So I'm always very reflective about the Pat Tillman moment, not just yeah. a celebration of who he was, but then also finding out that there was a cover-up and the way he was killed. Right. In, bo- in, in a very important way, it's kind of a double-edged sword showing and revealing that time in America. How it was, you know, the glory and the tragedy of post-11 right. all at once. But do you, now it's been 16 years, I think. Do you have any thoughts or reflections on, on Pat Tillman in, in that time period? Oh, no, there's no question. I mean, you know, Paul, we were, we were, you know, both adults then and, and remember very vividly how the NFL used Pat Tillman Right. I mean, that's the only way I could put it is that they used him. <laughs> they used him in death to kind of promote this agenda that they wanted to um, put forward. Um, and you've, as you pointed out, subsequently, we found out that, you know, Pat Tillman was very much anti-war and certainly anti that war, <laughs> you know, and and, um, and 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 it makes you kind of think a certain way about symbolism. Um, and it takes away from the real heroism of that young man, you know, to walk away from a very lucrative career um, to serve his country because he felt like he needed to do that. And the reasons he felt like he needed to do that were not the reasons we were told, you know. So um, it was a very abject lesson to me in understanding the power of propaganda and um, and how you have to really be um, kind of a alert citizen to when you're being manipulated. Um, And I always felt bad for his family because, you know, they were kind of brought into this maelstrom that they weren't asked to. And I want, I always, it always bothers me when you do that to people, they're they're still grieving. They don't even have a time to grieve properly, you know? And so it just, it always troubled me. Um, After 9-11, I did a piece about uh, a guy that was in the Pentagon that died that day and was a former college football player, um, a running back. And I can't tell you just how moved and impressed I was with everybody connected with that. Um, you know, from his friends to his widow, to, to the, to the officers that were there with him that day. And it's just, um, there were a lot of, there are a lot of people who, who sacrifice, as you know, and I, the sacrifice should be enough, you know, I mean, and, yeah. and to ask them to be something else in death is where I really have a, you know, I really take issue with. And, and so I certainly remember Pat Tillman's death and I certainly remember uh, the controversy about it. And, you know, again, even though I was in my thirties then, it was a good lesson for me to learn. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, and the NFL has learned a lot of lessons the hard way, I think, over time yeah. <laughs> in the last couple of years. And anytime folks want to argue that you, you have to separate politics and sports, uh, you can't, and the, the NFL impossible. is the ultimate example. Right. Um, you know, a lot of folks don't know about one of John McCain's last efforts when he was in the Senate mm-hmm. was an investigation into how the Department of Defense was paying NFL teams right. to do these fancy welcome home ceremonies where the soldier would run out into the field right. and the NFL – more than anybody else, in my view, has wrapped themselves in the American flag and gotten the power of the American brand at a right. discount, right? right. That, that's right. never been more true than around Pat Tillman. I actually had a 
a meeting with Goodell, I guess it was last year, a year and mm-hmm. a half ago, at the, at the crest of the of the uh, the Kaepernick controversy, right. I was leading IABA and they had, uh, we had done a survey of, of veterans to ask them how they felt about this. And mm-hmm. number one takeaway was that they didn't really think it was that important. And they thought right. that other things were more important, but then they were divided. There were some folks who say, I'm boycotting the NFL. Mm-hmm. There were others who said, you know, I'm going to support folks in their power to kneel. But I was interested in meeting Goodell and seeing that they didn't really have a plan for Trump. And, and they've mm-hmm. consistently seemed to kind of struggle with the politics yes. um, <clears throat> in the face of the magnitude of it, right? I, right? I told Goodell, I said, you're getting your ass kicked. I said, yeah. Trump's kicking the shit out of you, and he has a mm-hmm. plan, and you don't. His plan is to just keep knocking you around, and your mm-hmm. plan is to just, like, reel. You're on defense, right. uh, and, and he's driving this conversation. So I think that the, the plan of the NFL basically was to keep their head down, put Kaepernick in the penalty box, right. and wait for it to blow over. and. Right. And that seems to have been the case. But I think, you know, the NFL is still something that brings me tremendous happiness, support. Sure, sports, I get it. Yeah. Sports brings us so much happiness. And I think yeah. we're all looking at that now. But you're a guy who brings a lot of positivity to everything you do. Um, I want to bring positivity on this show anytime I can. But your insights on another question I ask everyone, David Aldridge, what makes you happy? Well, I think what, what it's a good question. I mean, what makes me happy at this stage of my life is my really i mean it's not a cliche my family and my friends they really do um i have you know had a great life i've met a lot of people and it's been wonderful to to kind of live this life that i've led um but as you get older as as you know you start losing people right (laughs) you start losing friends and family members and you hold tighter to the ones that you still have and i know that's been the case with me over the last you know 10 years or so. I mean, it seems like every day someone I know is losing a parent or losing a brother or a sister. You know, I lost my brother last year and, and it's, you know, it's tough, man. <laughs> it's tough. And um, so I have found that the the company of friends and being in, uh, with people, whether it's here in DC or, or out of town, is something that really makes me happy. Just knowing people who really do know me, <laughs> you know, um, and I, I enjoy that. I enjoy being able to kind of relax and enjoy that time with them because it's, we're not here very long, man, <laughs> you know, so you got to enjoy those moments when you can. It's one of the reasons why I took the job with the Athletic is because I just wanted to be around my family more, you know, I just... It was it was time, you know. The boys are I have, we have two sons, and they're getting up there. They're both teenagers now, and you know that means they're not going to be here much longer, you know. So I wanted to make sure that I was more present, and so that that's what brings me joy right now more than anything. Thank you. I've got two boys. They're much younger. They're four, yeah. one, but close in the any. You know, I think one of the hardest parts of this Corona normal is parenting. Yeah, it's whether your kids are teenagers, grown or, yeah. or toddlers. Um, you know, you're you're a guy that a lot of folks feel like is kind of a father figure in their life. If you grew up watching sports, you look up to you. <laughs> but do you have do you have any advice as a, as a parent or lessons learned now that you're a bit wiser and, and, mm-hmm. and older? I would say number one, your significant other is always right. <laughs> That's a good lesson. <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever they say. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that helps. That helps out a lot. You know, I mean, just, I just, just be you, man. I mean, you know, you, you, you're you're a good guy. You're a good man, and they will see that over the course of their lifetimes. And so, if you're consistent in your values and what you try to teach your children, um, I think just being present is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, to them, just them knowing you're there, 
whether they say anything to you or not, I'm, you know, again, teenage boys are in that kind of grunting stage where they don't really, <laughs> don't really communicate verbally anymore, you know, um, but that's okay. They just, I think it's them knowing that I'm here more often than I'm not now, I think makes a difference. And um, so just being present in their lives, whatever it is they're doing, whatever their extracurricular activities are, if you can get to as many of them as you can, man, that goes a long way. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I, I am extremely grateful, most of all, for your example. You know, everybody I have on this show, I talk about a lot, are, are leaders in different industries and in different spaces, but folks that uh, anybody can connect with or understand their journey, and I respect your journey so much and the way you've done it. You know, I went back and read the, the letter you wrote or the piece you wrote when you talked about going to the athletic and talking about being connected to your family. Yeah. I can see anybody who's been around sports, you know, you can tell – who the players really respect and, and, yeah. and the coaches and the administrators and everybody else re and everybody who talks to you has a reverence for you and a respect for you because of the way you do things and the kind of person you are. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and I want to thank you for your consistent voice. I mean, I, you're really a fantastic writer. You've taught me to be a better writer reading you and, and watching your, your, your coverage. So I appreciate that very much. And this is the point of show where we are normally in person to a giving of the gift. So I'm going to do the virtual giving of the gift. Okay. <laughs> if you don't mind. So first, we've got some Angry Americans gear that I'll send. Oh, dude. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Oh, I'll, thank you so much. I'll send you blue and red. Since oh, that's great. Seat, you can have both. But uh, Made in America by the veterans of Oscar Mike. Oh, that's sound. We don't have jerseys yet, but we might have to work okay. on it. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll take the T-shirts. That's fine. <laughs> some quarantine uh, men's products for you. Ah, Rob, there you go. Rob okay. Sierra. Uh, they also have antibacterial wipes in case you can't shower or you shower oh, boobs or okay. something. Or your boys might need a. Yeah. Uh, they shower then, uh, occasionally, right? Now. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I've been trying. It's tougher to, to to pick a whiskey. Usually, I go into a whiskey store, um, but I got some some Bakers. Uh, oh wow! That is American-made. Um, that I thought, you know, it's it's seven years minimum, but you're a guy who's kind of seven days a week. You've been bringing great integrity and inspiration uh, and impact and information. Oh, Paul, so this is very I'll nice. Get to, I'll get this to you somehow. I appreciate all of that, man. And Seriously. Then, uh, there's one last piece. I ran out of yeah. my stash of peeps. You know, the the, the Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is the last question I've been asking everybody. There are three colors of peeps, yellow, pink, and blue. David, which color would you pick and why? And yellow, those three blue. colors, I'm probably going to go blue. <laughs> I'm probably going to go blue peeps. Um, imagine, no, I, I don't look good in yellow, and I don't know, pink, eh, not for me. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? What's your favorite sport yourself? Like, you're such a sport lover. Do you have a favorite sport you like You like yourself or you like to play or do? Um, well, I was, you know, my sport was always, I, I kind of, I kind of, uh, petered out at softball. That was kind of <laughs> level I played at ball. Um, you know, look, I love, I love, there's something to love in all, all the different sports for different reasons, but I certainly, because of my familiarity with basketball, I would say basketball because even after 30 years of covering it on a fairly close basis, I still almost always see something amazing every night <laughs> you know somebody yeah. does something incredible uh and so it's the it's the play it's the individuality within structure that i just find fascinating you have the individual talents of whoever it is lebron or steph curry or whatever whoever's on the court but they have to play with four other guys for the thing to work otherwise it's so it's just a solo act you know and so the fact that you have that great individual talent in a team structure when it works well, that's what I love about the game. I really do love about it.
it's a great lesson for everybody. I share that with you. I mean, and now that I'm at the point where I play old man basketball and <laughs> half of my goal is just trying not to get hurt. Exactly. I'm a guy, I'm a guy who, set, who sets a lot of picks. So that's, there you kind of, go. that's tough. Try to not to get hurt and set picks at the same time. No, but it's, it's actually easier to set picks. Yeah, right. Less chance of getting hurt. Much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but also, the, the, you know, I, I, as I've taught my sons now how to play, it's the improvisation of basketball, the creativity, right. yes. maybe more than almost any other sport. And you see, right. um, you know, the old guys on the court. Now I'm one of the old guys. Yeah. But that, that creativity is, is part of what just makes it fun. Yeah, the fun to basketball that I don't know if, if any other sport really, really has. Well, it's got the scoring. I think people like scoring and, the, you know, the back and forth and, and possessions are quick. So it's a it's a game for the 21st century, for sure. Well, you are a man for the 21st century. <laughs> you, are, you are a great uh, leader, a great American, a great role model. I am very, very thankful for your friendship and for your time and for joining us. Uh, I encourage everybody to read everything you write on The Athletic, to check out your podcast, follow you on Twitter. But my deepest thanks to you, especially during this time, for joining us, David. Paul, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you asking me to be on. I'm a big fan of yours, man, and the work you're doing. And and I always feel inadequate around people that really do do work with those those men and women that that sacrifice so much for the rest of us. And it's such a small percentage, as you know. And they don't have anybody. They have very few people, I should say, advocating for them. And you do that. And I really respect what you do. Well. Thank you, my friend. I hope we can get together soon and uh, drink some whiskey in a, in a really I nice, would love empty, that. a really nice empty basketball arena. Maybe like me and you could do a game of horse at Madison Square Garden. You might know a guy. <laughs> and we, could, we could hook it up and do it. For I sure. might know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> right. David Alger, the great and powerful David Alger. Thank you so much for joining us on Angry Americans. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Bob. Whether you're playing foosball in your basement, you're watching the Chicago Bulls, or you're just playing poker at your kitchen table, no matter what's your game, you need some stuff from Bravo Sierra. Bravo Sierra engineers highly effective, non-toxic, awesome grooming products that stand the test of the most active lifestyles, and they are perfect for the pandemic. Bravo Sierra, as you may know if you listen to this show, pioneered an unprecedented large-scale testing program with 1,000 U.S. military service members and their communities. It's a simple idea. If the products work for our military, they'll work for all of us. Bravo Sierra creates awesome products that gives back 5% of sales to the MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation, support programs for active duty service members, veterans, and their families. You'll feel good, you'll look good, you'll smell good, all with products that are healthy, high quality, and affordable. If you listen to this show, you know I'm a fan. You know Flo Groberg's a fan. Men's Health calls Bravo Sierra a game-changing grooming line. It is definitely that. And I'll share with you a quarantine story. I hadn't taken a shower in a day or two or maybe three, and I needed an antibacterial body wipe. I used it. It was just like being in the military again. Took care of myself. I smelled great. I felt great. Antibacterial body wipes are excellent. They are just one of the products from Bravo Sierra. They also have an awesome hair and body solid cleanser. They've got deodorant. They've got body wash. They've got face moisturizer. They've got shaving foam. And they've got the hygiene ready set, which is a perfect way to try Bravo Sierra for the first time. Only two products that you need to be clean and ready to go. You get the solid cleanser to wash your hands, face, body, and hair. Use it as frequently as needed. And the antibacterial wipes that I've told you about that are awesome, super popular. And if you have no access to water, 
or you just need a refresher. So go to bravosierra.com. I'm very thankful to have them as our partner on this show. They're powering this episode in the last month of shows or so. They've been a perfect partner for the pandemic. Flo Groberg, Medal of Honor recipient, loves him. I've sent him to Paul Hazer and his crew, to Jake Wood and his crew. David Aldridge is going to get some. And right now you can try the Bravo Sierra Starter Kit for free. It's one of their best-selling products. You only pay the shipping, and it's a limited time. So go to bravosierra.com backslash angryamericans. And if you buy anything else, use the code angry, and you get 15% off everything. So especially in the pandemic, you need to be clean. You need to smell good and you need to be safe. So check out bravosierra.com. Use the code ANGRY. Crewing essentials, field tested by the military and me, and made in the USA and kicking ass just like this show. Check out Bravo Sierra, bravosierra.com. There's plenty of reason to be angry. Especially now, especially if you miss sports. I miss sports and occasionally I get angry about that. But even without sports, there's reason to be hopeful. And you got to keep your calm. Just like Chris Fussell taught us and like Michael Jordan with the ball in the fourth quarter or Tom Brady in the final drive or Mariano Rivera in the bottom of the ninth, you got to keep your cool. But even more than the virus, even more than the stupid, calm is contagious. And if you keep your calm, wash your hands, Run your wind sprints, eat your Wheaties, stay at home, especially as a nation at war, there's a way to make an impact. It's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that'll channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And just like this show, our actions are packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. If you need to throw a fifth man on the floor, let's call it independence. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Burner Boy out here in Lagos, Nigeria, sending love to everyone out there. That's Burna Boy, an inspiring Nigerian singer and songwriter and global phenomenon. Crazy talented. That's him just sitting on his couch singing. And he was the highlight of a historic event. Lady Gaga put it together, and she's amazing. And she always gives us good reason to smile because she is a helper. And she created a true team effort that motivated people globally. This past weekend, the major networks teamed up for Global Citizens One World Together at Home. It was an event to support the fight against COVID-19 and the World Health Organization that Trump just yanked the funding from. Tens of millions of people watched, and the organizers say that the special generated over $128 million in pledge donations. Now, if you haven't seen it already, you can go to globalcitizen.org. But it was the largest virtual gathering of artists and influencers probably since Live Aid back in 1985. It was different. But it was still special. It was hosted by Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel and my friend Stephen Colbert, who's always an awesome guy doing awesome stuff. But the One World Together at Home performers ranged from Lady Gaga to the Rolling Stones to J-Lo to Celine Dion, Alicia Keys, Taylor Swift, Eddie Vedder, Billie Eilish, Lizzo, LL Cool J, 
Keith Urban, Sam Smith, who was awesome, Matthew McConaughey, and Sean Mendez, and of course, Burna Boy. Artists from around the country and around the world teaming up to tell people if you stay home, you can help others, and you can also help critical healthcare workers stay alive and stay safe. First off, if you go to globalcitizen.org, you can take a pledge as your first action in the fight against COVID, and then they'll follow up with future actions in coming days. But if you pledge to stay at home, you can stay at home for someone and talk about who's inspiring you to stay at home. Now, of course, they'll loop you into their email list, but give you ways to take action. They'll give you ways to take action in your own life. They'll give you advocacy ways to tell leaders to step up, and you can stop the pandemic from happening again. But check out globalcitizen.org and check out all the live stream schedule of over eight hours of content. Pick an artist you like and check it out. There's a lot of good stuff there. There's some crap, but there's also some great stuff. And overall, it was a pretty inspiring event. The entire world was united in watching that show. And we're now united in rooting for one team. The world once was rooting for the Chicago Bulls and the Team USA. Now we're all rooting for each other. So do your part and give a little back so we can all move forward. And I got another quick recommendation for you. Watch The Last Dance. It's on ESPN. They dropped the first two episodes and they'll drop two more episodes every week for the next five weeks. But check out The Last Dance. It's an exploration into American society, into leadership, into times of adversity, into teamwork, but also it's a break. Michael Jordan, in my view, the greatest basketball player of all time. I was lucky to have seen him. But if you want to understand Michael Jordan because you were too young to experience him, or you want to explain him to younger people who don't fully appreciate him, check out The Last Dance and look for our friend David. Aldrich. He's featured in the documentary and it's absolutely fantastic. Two easy ways to be entertained, to get you through the quarantine and to give you a little bit of impact. Do your part. Be a part of the team so we can all get together and win this thing. But to be on the team, you got to step on the floor. You got to ask for the ball and you got to take action. Do your part. Be a helper. Help the helpers and take the shot. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Tell me what you're doing in your area to make a positive impact. Don't just be angry, be active. All right, America's truly a team game. Winning anything requires teamwork. So does this show, so does America, and I want to thank a few folks for helping make this happen. But first, I want to tell you about a new way to get involved. This show has been building, it's been growing, and now we are on Patreon. You can support this show and get more deeply involved with me, with our guests, with future events that are mostly online right now, but will be in person down the line. Now, there are three levels of membership. First, there's the Vigilant. Then there's the very vigilant. Then there's the most vigilant. Three ways for you to get more deeply involved with me, the show, our guests, and the broader world of Righteous Media. You get exclusive access to special events. You get deep discounts on merch. And you get a chance to chat with me and others by phone or maybe Zoom. We'll take your questions. We'll share lessons learned. And get your suggestions on how we can make this show better. So look for Angry Americans on Patreon and become a member. You'll have invested in this quality content. You'll make it happen. And you'll have access to exclusive content and opportunities now and in the future. Join the Angry Americans community now. Be part of the vigilant, the very vigilant, or the most vigilant. 
We'll also have special gifts and special surprises. It'll be linked in this description for this pod, wherever you listen, and also at angryamericans.us. We'll make an impact together. You'll support this great content. It's just a couple bucks, and it's definitely going to be fun. So check it out, Angry Americans on Patreon. Be a member. Join us now. My thanks to you for supporting this, and my thanks to a few folks who made this awesome episode happen. David Aldridge, always a clutch player. Follow him on Twitter. Read him on The Athletic. Subscribe to his podcast, Hoops Adjacent, which is really awesome, and he has a really fun one this week with Charles Barkley, the great Charles Barkley, talking about the coronavirus, thinking that he had it, and being locked in a hotel room, eating room service. So if you want to hear Charles Barkley talk about coronavirus and eating room service and just talking shit, you definitely want to check it out. But that's David Aldridge's podcast. And my thanks to David for being so flexible and so courteous and so thoughtful and so generous. Also want to thank the Righteous Media team, especially Mighty Mercy Rich. She is our point guard swishing and dishing on a regular basis. Creative Chris Rosenthal, he's a human rebounding machine, creates all of our graphics, all of our amazing videos, all of our design. And Bill Schultz, our amazing producer, sound engineer, he's like our Phil Jackson making all the pieces connect. And Bravo Sierra. If the Bulls had Gatorade, we've got Bravo Sierra. Bravo Sierra has our back every time. Check them out at bravosierra.com. Use the code word ANGRY and get 15% off. They are awesome and they are perfect for the pandemic. You need the stuff they've got and the stuff they've got does good. So check out our friends at Bravo Sierra. Also, want to send a thanks out to Rachel Maddow. She has been staying on the VA and following this show and following my tweets and turning up the heat. She's always deadly from downtown. You definitely want to check her out in episode seven if you're new here. It's one of our top rated episodes ever. Also want to thank my friend Chris Cuomo. He had me on CNN late Friday night. He is a beast in the paint. He's also on the men from the coronavirus. So is his wife, Christina. So I want to send a big shout out and my thanks to Chris for keeping up the fire, for giving me the opportunity to talk about these issues and for having me on the show. If you haven't heard it, Chris also joined us on this show back in episode 21. It's a great escape uh, from the chaos of the quarantine. You can also find out how Chris stays in shape when he's down there in the basement and uh, why he loves fishing. He talks about his brother as well, so you definitely want to check that out. It was a very, very great episode and gets lots of great ratings, so check out Chris Cuomo back in episode 21. You can also watch most of our interviews. If you go to angryamericans.us, if you're not listening to long podcasts because you're maybe in a crowded house and you you want to share the content, pop up some of the video interviews and you could see me sit down with folks like Chris Cuomo and Rachel Maddow and Megan McCain and Ambassador Susan Rice and Pete Buttigieg and so many others. There's video content that you can always check out at angryamericans.us or on our YouTube page. So definitely check that out. Also, if you're in New York, I will be on Good Day New York this Friday to talk about how the coronavirus is impacting veterans and to break down the latest. So check that out. My thanks to Lori Stokes for having me on. And my thanks to you, our dedicated listeners, our clutch players, our pivot people, our folks who are always there to help us drive this forward. I want to thank you just for listening. And I want to hear from you. We have a hotline, 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. Leave a message anytime. I might pick it up. I probably won't. But leave a message anytime, and we'll make you famous. Call, tweet, post on social, and we will make you famous. I'll make you famous. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. All right, and leading off our lineup is Anthony from Spring Valley, Illinois. Number 815, Anthony. 
Anthony, who tweets it at the Antho815. He is a big sports fan, so I think he's going to dig this pod. But he likes the St. Louis Cardinals. He likes the Spurs. He likes MMA. He likes the Packers and the Irish pro wrestling. Indies to WWE, FBR, Resist, usually follow back. This guy is all over geographically, but he's a big sports fan. And he tweeted, time for the weekly listening of Angry Americans. Each episode feels like an event. Thanks to Paul Rykoff. I'm glad to hear that, man. We try to make them really special. Sometimes they take a bit longer, but I hope you appreciate it. And I thank you for spending your time with us. And we're going to do more sports stuff. So I hope you like this one with David Aldridge. Share it with your friends. And we're going to keep it going. Up next, Timothy Fox. Fox 4 Timothy. Uh, location unknown. I'm going to tell you guys, if you don't put a location I can't shout you out as easily. I'm a little bit more reluctant. I worry you're a bot. But Timothy Fox is not a bot. He is a fox. And he said, great episode, Paul. You're killing it with the last four to five guests. Thank you. It's been challenging uh, in the pandemic situation, but we continue to try to improve our sound. Thank you for hanging in there with us. But we want to always record for sound and video. We could definitely do a higher quality audio, but then we wouldn't capture that video. So go back and check out the video. Continue to give us your feedback. uh, And thanks to Timothy Fox for tuning in. Thanks also to Rachel Dawn Fudham. She is in Tehran. Tehran, Iran. She tweets at Flying Monkey Free. She is Bogota born, bred in Teaneck, New Jersey, outspoken on social justice, divestment, community advocate, management lead, fundraiser for social change, and proud parent and wife. But she gave us a shout out all the way from Tehran. And she said she saw a tweet from Stevie Van Zant, the great member of the E Street Band from Bruce Springsteen, who uh, tweeted at Rachel Maddow, who said she's been doing great shows on the greatest generation in our nursing homes. And our friend Rachel uh, retweeted that and commented that she was echoing this. She said anyone who cares about the greatest generation should listen to Angry Americans in addition to paying attention to Maddow. Uh, you're absolutely right, Rachel. Maddow and I talk all the time. Uh, I've tried to encourage her to focus on the stories that we've been focusing on. She's had me on before, but she's a great journalist. She cares very deeply about this country. I think she's been just doing some killer shows, and she has the intelligence and the tenacity to stay on top of sometimes complex and bureaucratic stories like this VA story. But she gets it, uh, and she's been helping a lot of folks through the pandemic. And so have you, Rachel. So thanks for shouting us up. Next up, Matt. Legron, who tweets at uh, CO Gator 06 in Denver, Colorado, another big sports guy, lifelong Gator fan, long suffering Dolphins fan, Colorado Avalanche and Cleveland Indian fan, and a proud Air Force retiree. What's with you guys? How do you root for so many teams in so many different cities? Well, respect nonetheless. I appreciate you, Matt. Hope you're holding it down out there in Colorado. And he said, Paul, the Tony Romo of predicting stupid. Um, I love Tony Romo. I love Tony Romo as a broadcaster so much more than I loved him as a player. But I love Matt, and thank you for shouting me out. He added a gift for the Housewives of Orange County, which I do on occasion watch. I am a big fan of Bravo TV. I watch the Housewives. I watch Vanderpump Rules. I watch watch What Happens Live. And, of course, I watch Top Chef. Uh, so my thanks to Tom Colicchio. We did a quick hit of The Dispatch this week with Tom Colicchio. The Dispatch are quick shows that I'm popping out with breaking news and top leaders we've had in the past. So I did a check-in with Tom Colicchio. Go back and check that out right here where you got this podcast. And thanks, finally, to Beth. Location unknown. But Beth is Blue Eyes 72. 
Her majors, ice hockey, shopping, books, music, chocolate, D-O-O-L fan, and J&J ship. I don't know what that means, but uh, another big sports fan, so I hope you like this episode with David Eldridge. She said, listening to Angry Americans, Paul Rykoff, and making a big old batch of chili. Hashtag rainy stay-at-home day. Beth, I love chili, and my wife makes killer chili, so I hope the chili was tasty. Maybe we will have some chili at some point in the soon when this is over, but my thanks to you, Beth. So thanks to Anthony, Timothy, Emily, Rachel, Matt, Beth. Appreciate all of you. You're all on fire and breaking backboards. Thank you all, and keep the feedback coming. Please keep the feedback coming. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and sound off. I'm always grateful to you all. And as always, thank you to my wife and my two boys. Uh, it was Earth Day this week, right? Coming right after 420, both of which we celebrated thoroughly. But uh, Earth Day was really, really special. Having the boys understand and connect with the Earth, especially now, is very important. And it was also Essential Worker Day this week in my son's school. And he was a farmer which was very exciting. He was very excited about that. And we did watch Michelle Obama, who reads books once a week. We also have been listening to a lot of Winnie the Pooh audiobooks. There's a lot of Winnie the Pooh going on in my house, which is a little maddening, but also wonderful. And a lot of Curious George books. And Khan Academy for Kids. If you got little ones, it's free. And you're looking for really high-quality digital educational content, I highly recommend Khan Academy. So my thanks to Khan Academy. My thanks to our family. But you all are awesome. You're always MVPs, and you always hit the big shots, and you always have my back, so I appreciate you very much. And please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave the show a quick five-star review. Or if you don't want to leave five stars, you can go leave two stars over at Tucker Carlson's podcast. But subscribe now, and you will have it hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday. Uh, They tend to come in the evenings now. Bill and I work very hard on them all day and all week. Uh, and look for them Thursday evenings. Uh, that's when they'll be dropping, and they'll take you into your weekend with some of the four eyes. Also, we did that quick hit with Tom Colicchio. We're going to do more. Look out for that. Also, 420 was this week. So on this 420, I definitely want to tell you to go back and check out episode 12 with the godfather of the modern drug movement, Ethan Nadelman. If you're new around here and you want to find out how marijuana legalization started, go check out episode 12 with Ethan Nadelman. Puff, puff, pass, pass, enjoy it and share. Another classic for 420 Day is episode 25 with tattoo master Scott Campbell. He is a brilliant guy, a a fantastically successful guy, a very warm guy, and he described how his grandma's pot brownies became the inspiration for his game-changing cannabis brand, Bebo. But check out Scott Campbell, check out Bebo, and check out episode 25 that episode and many others are continuing to do well around the world. We haven't checked in on this in a while, but I want you to know that we are popular like the Dream Team all around the world. It's true. We're actually number 64 right now in the politics podcast in Mexico. So number 64 in Mexico. And check this out. We are number seven in Switzerland. Switzerland. I love you, Switzerland. Thank you for the support. Americans are not the only ones that are understandably angry. So tell your peeps worldwide to check us out. If you're not angry, you are not paying attention. And look for Righteous Late Night on my Instagram. And definitely keep the feedback coming on social. We see you. We hear you. We are with you. You can go to angryamericans.us, sign up for that newsletter. 
Uh, and speaking of sports, we will have events that are connected to sports when the coronavirus stuff settles down. We actually had planned to be a sponsor for the FDNY versus NYPD hockey game at Madison Square Garden. That had to get postponed, but when it comes back, we will be doing that and other sports-connected events. So be sure to go to Angry Americans and sign up for our newsletter and follow us and become a member on Patreon. If you're a member there, you will find out about those tickets and other events first. And in the meantime, we will be doing live streams of other things. We will adapt, we will improvise, and we will overcome. So stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we will keep this movement growing. Week by week, we'll continue to lock down titles just like those great Chicago Bulls teams. It's okay to be angry, especially now, and know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. A glass of wine and a hand. That's Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones from the Together at Home concert. And as I play that, I want you to think about this. Mick Jagger is 76 years old. Keith Richards is 76 years old. Walt Clyde Frazier, the basketball great, is 75 years old. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is 73 years old. The great Bill Russell is 86 years old. So stay home for them. Don't be the reason that Keith Richards dies. Don't kill Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Walt Clyde Frazier. Don't kill the Rolling Stones. Don't kill the NBA legends. Stay home. And yeah, you can't always get what you want, but you can get what you need. So hang in there. Be good to others and listen to more music. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Please stay home and please stay frosty. And if we don't, we're going to.